We are live, Kenny Aronoff. Hi, right. this is Vicki Abelson, and this is Game Changers, and I'm so excited to have you here, Kenny. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I feel like I've known you my whole life. You got that New York kind of attitude. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The first day we connected, we talked like crazy, mm. back and forth on like three different platforms. Do you remember that? We yeah, like at, at, at about three in the morning, too. <laughs> Right, we were the only two people on the planet alive. So, okay, yeah. where is this? Where is this place with these gold records, platinum records behind you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I live in Studio City, California, and this is maybe six hour, six hour, six miles away, going, you know, north, uh, from Studio City. Yeah, and I just have two rooms, and plus, uh, actually, I have four rooms, and then I have uh, next door in another building is all my uh, a whole bunch of other drums that I use for Fogarty tours, Joe Satriani tour, and sessions. I mean, I used to have drums in New York, L New York, Indiana, Nashville, and I moved everything out here. That's what happened. I just had to make a diff. When the when, look at when the budgets, when the record sales tank, budgets tank. Wow. I saw the writing on the wall. It was either Nashville, L.A. I picked uh, L.A. because L.A. offers so much, so much. I don't want, I almost want to say so much more, but it's not just the music business out here. It's everything else. It's a lot of like entrepreneurs, a lot of businesses. Google's here, you know, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley's here. Uh, everything is here. And so it's a, I felt like I want to be in an environment. I mean, LA is one of the, the heaviest cities in the world uh, for cutting edge and, and, and new th ideas. And so I felt like this is where I should be. I made the same choice. We we were bi-coastal for a while, and then we yeah. had to make a choice to give something up, and we gave up New York. Yeah. And uh, L.A. is, I love L.A. I'm sorry, I love L.A. Well, what's there not to like? It's I mean, right now, New York would not be a cool place to be. So L.A., you know, it's a crazy world, but, uh, you know, people, a lot of my friends are splitting. The people that weren't making a lot of money in the music business had to leave because they couldn't play in clubs and do what they needed to do to get by. Uh, the, some of the very, very wealthy people left because the tax situation, they're moving to like Texas or they're getting a place in Nevada or they're going to Arizona or whatever. Uh, I even have a friend who's very successful and he moved to Dubai and now he's in Indonesia. He's going to wait for two years before he decides where to go. But, wow. you know, I'm me. I'm just saying, you know what? Right now, it makes no sense for me to go anywhere. This is where I've got to be. This gets ridiculous, and you know, you know. So, Kenny, let's talk about how you've handled. So, 13, 14 months ago, mm -hmm. I imagine you had a whole. Oh yeah. A lot of work lined up that you were ready to do. Yeah, I was going to do a 21-week tour with Joe Satriani. I had done his record. It entered the charts at number eight. I was going to go on tour with John Fogarty, Creedence Clearwater guy. And uh, and then I have a band called Supersonic Blues Machine where we get Billy Gibbons to play with us. All that was booked, plus sessions. And yeah. all, all, and I had a lot of speaking engagements booked. And all of a sudden, that all... That. Yeah, well, you know, I got into... I'll speak very briefly on that. We can come back to it. But, I mean, I, yeah, I started to build a business six years ago. Uh, which is basically inspirational or motivational speaking. My my subjects mostly center around teamwork. Duh, I'm in a band. Uh, teamwork, leadership, innovation, creative, creativity, uh, adapt, adjust to stay relevant. Uh, the three C's, which I call, 
which you do when I, let's say I did an Elton John section, session. You know, when I walk in, it's like I got to connect with the guy immediately. Right. Communicate with the guy, that's the second C. And then finally, now we're going to collaborate. I can't make music with a guy that I have no relationship with. And he wants to have a relationship with me. Like when I did, I did seven years at the Kennedy Center Honors. And I mean- We gotta talk about those, yeah. Oh, that's heavy. But I mean, you know, Dave Grohl walks in, Willie Nelson walks in, Chris Cornell walks in, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Lionel Richie, you get the drift. Steven Tyler, I get off the drums, I go right to each one of these people. Pretty much they all know me anyway, because I've been around for so long. But the point is, they are feeling a little bit funny walking into a room of these amazing the best musicians in the country and i go to them they love it don henley i remember i went to don he says oh man i'm so glad you're playing he now had a friend we connect we just say a few words say and then when he's we're rehearsing he can turn around he's got a friend that's why i call it the three c's connect communicate collaborate and so I talk about this stuff in my speaking. And the, Kenny, how did, how did this start for you? You say six years ago. By the way, Ross Hogarth is saying handsome Kenny. Um, how did this start for you? Um, uh, I'm yeah, guessing this is something that's been going on for a long time in your life. Well, uh, the, I think my autobiography, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, came out four mm-hmm. years ago. Whatever, it was five years. But anyway, the point is, I started, uh, I, I always... For 30 years, I did drum clinics, but, you know, you talk, but there's no script. It's just, right. you know, I have, I have a basic plan, but it's all improvising. But when I started, uh, I got invited to speak about my book, and then I don't know what made me put together a show where I, I have a, a computer that has, a, a you know, a deck, a PowerPoint, and pictures, right. and, a, and a movie, and then I have another computer that well, now we do Zoom, and then I would, uh, well, I do have another computer that has music on it, and I would uh, be able to use the PowerPoint pictures that would follow my script, and um, I put together a show, and then I got an agent. Uh, The agent actually didn't take me on right away. He said, this is what you need to do. He said, most people think they can speak, but they can't. Most people think they can write a book, but they can't. He says, this is what you need to do. I did it, and three years later, I came back and said, I did what you told me to do, which was film me, learn. I got uh, coaches. I did all my homework. And I came back, and he went, oh, my God, I want to work with you. You did everything I told you and more, and you did everything at at the highest level. You know, websites, to the point where I wasn't afraid after spending a lot of money and building a website with somebody. I didn't like it. I scratched it and started again. I mean, it was expensive. I mean, I paid the the websites, filming me, editing, creating a reel, throwing that away, doing another one. Every aspect of trying to build this business, which, by the way, if you want to be successful at something, you got to work your goddamn ass to be successful. Because, you know, and I say it in my book, I mean, I crush entitlement, lazy people. I don't have time for that. You don't, you cannot stay successful if you're lazy and entitled. You can't. And I don't believe everyone should get a trophy. I don't believe in coddling. Coddling's for babies. You know, I believe in loving people. When they work hard, do your part. I do my part together. We will co-elevate, which co-elevation is a term I learned from this guy, Keith Ferrazzi, who I took a course on when the pandemic started. Keith Ferrazzi talks about co-elevation. Co-elevation is, let's say Vicky, you and me, 
are going are on the same team. We're doing a business together. I, I want you. I care about you. I really care about you to do a great job, and I care about you as a person. And I want you to care about me the right. same way. And together we care about each other, and together we will do great work because we're co-elevating together. I love that. So, in other words, in the let's say I'm making a record for Elton John. It's not good enough if I play the drums great. I need the bass player and the guitar player and everybody else to do a great job. Because just because I'm great doesn't mean it's going to end up on the record. Right. Everybody's got to be great. We have to co-elevate. So anyway, I um, I started back to the the agent. Then he started to book me, and I just developed this business. And and with the pandemic. You know, which I'll get back to that question you asked. When the pandemic hit, I immediately realized, okay, there's no touring. That's done. I was wondering about my studio because the studio I created, this Uncommon Studios, when the budgets, when, when the record sales tanked, the right. budgets tanked, I came to L.A. because I knew I had to be in a main city, Nashville, L.A., or New York. New York was done. They were done anyway. Uh, but the, the Nashville, I was working a lot. And I had drum sets in Nashville, New York, L.A., and I was living in Indiana because of the Mellencamp days. And when the budgets were there, they'd fly me all over the world. I had a drum right. set in Japan, in Germany. Wow. And people would fly me. There was money, you know, first class, a rental car, per hmm. diem, you know, the best hotels. All that went away. So I went, okay. And I believe you have to ad ad adjust and adapt and take action to stay relevant. I talk about, you know, adapt or die, which is a new speech I'm giving this week. Adapt or die. So when the COVID hit, that I already had that in me, in me, in my DNA, in my thought. I went, okay, tours are gone. I wonder what the recording business is going to be like. It was fine. Everybody's really nothing, nothing ch in my studio. Now the big, the big, like the big studios where you charge, you know, the big rooms get anywhere from fifteen hundred to. Well, there's some that get less than that, but you know the big rooms like Henson and East West. I mean, they, in the heyday, they were getting two thousand a day, twenty five hundred a day, maybe fifteen. Uh, that all went away, you know. That had already gone away quite a bit, and so that's why I had this studio because I made it affordable to, for people to hire Kenny Aronoff, and so uh, that didn't change. I was because see, music makes people feel good emotionally, spiritually mentally and even physically me definitely physically and so people that music was a really great component even though we were doing it from a distance people send me files they've been doing this for years ever since i had the studio they'll send me their music i tell them exactly what to send me i load it into pro tools with my engineer i record drums and send it back to them and that's you know kind of saying it in a nutshell that didn't change the speaking business I lost a bunch of gigs, so I talked to my agent. The bottom line is I took action. I adapted, adjusted, took action. I invested money, and I created my studio. I turned it into basically a TV studio. I've got four TV screens. I've got three computers going, two iPads. I got basically there's two cameras, one in a speaking location, one in the drum location, I got a switcher. So I've got sound, I got lights. I brought in a guy from Entertainment Tonight to get the lights right. This was a long process of experimenting, learning, adjusting, 
and eventually I got a, a system going where I can do my show into Zoom. And uh, I've done, I did, my goal was to get set up and running in 2020 and then kick ass in 2021. Well, in 2020, in October, I got my first virtual speaking event. In January 2021, I got my second one. And I've got another one coming up, and I've got two or three booked, and it's starting to happen. And uh, my point is, is that I did take action. I didn't sit and wait for shit to come to me. I made it happen. And you just, you, it, it's so much, it's so good and so healthy for an individual to do something and accomplish something. Even if you don't reach the goal, it's the journey, there's the value in the journey. Because... You're learning how to survive, how to not wait for stuff to happen, make stuff happen. Even if it's one step every day, just one step. Because math, zero equals zero. You do nothing, you get nothing. It's that simple. Zero Kenny, equals zero. Kenny, tell us like what a, what a typical day, a typical day. Give us an example of... Because I have a feeling your days are packed with doing. You don't sound like somebody who's doing one thing in a day. What, what, what's, your dis, what's your daily discipline? Do you have a time that you get up? Do you have a routine that you do when you get out of bed? What do you do? Well, I mean, I have the eight steps to a healthy life, which we can talk about in a little bit. But, yes. and, 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 but the thing is, is that this is it's interesting you're asking me this question now because I, I, uh, I've had an insane five weeks. Uh, I was doing 10 to 13 hours a day getting my audio book recorded here in my studio. But I also had was writing charts for sessions. And I also was getting ready for all these different things. I'll give you an idea of what a day was last week. Okay. okay. So I agreed and I tend to say yes to everything. <laughs> and then and then if I, you know, I, I take on a lot. So I was going to do this live show with this guy, David Garfield. He's a great piano player in L.A. He's right. always got the finest musicians. And he said, hey, man, on April 8th, would you be into doing that? And I'm like, at that point, I, I thought my audio book would be way done. And I said, sure. So, you know, when, when someone says, ah, oh, man, we're just going to learn a few songs, it's never that simple. Because <laughs> for Kenny, it's not just kind of know it. I write every note out. Oh, I wish I had my charts here. I mean, every single note out. They're in the next room, but they're very, very detailed. I'm kind of known for this. Every note, and then I study it, and then I rehearse it, and I rehearse it, and I rehearse it. And, you know, in order to be great at anything, you've got to repeat that thing over and over and over and over again. So it takes time. Right. So I'm doing my audio book, plus I'm doing two other books. Modern Drummer is doing a Legend series, and they are doing one on Kenny Aronoff. Now, they're doing 19 transcriptions of 19 songs I've recorded. So like Cinderella, the Mellencamp, to Elton John, to the Buddy Rich Big Band, Avril Lavigne, uh, to Tony Iommi from Sabbath. I mean, it's all over the map. But <clears throat> I had interviewed with a writer 18, 19 stories to go with 19 songs. These, they sent me what they had done or what he had done, and I, I basically rewrote it all because it didn't sound, it wasn't right. So that takes a lot of time, plus the audio book, 10 to 13 hours, plus I'm writing charts for sessions I have to get done, 
you know, I'm working on a Joe Satriani record, which has got a timeline, and these other sessions. And then I'm learning this David, you know, Garfield stuff. Meanwhile, I got a, a Fogarty concert in Cabo last Sunday, which was on the 12th. So I'm revisiting that. And even though I've done it for 26 years, I'm sorry, man. You, I had to practice my butt off to get back into the the, the live fighting power uh, approach the way I play. I uh, it's almost like being I'm Tom Brady. I mean, I'm that I'm always training for the gig. It's right. it's a 365 day thing. And so right. so I had this one day <clears throat> last week where I woke up, I ran through the uh, tricky Garfield songs in my home on a practice pad, went to David's house at 12:30. We did a a three-hour setup and rehearsal. Then we did a two-hour concert. Then I came here and recorded till 11 p.m. the uh, Satriani record. Then I ran the Fogarty show from 11 Please. until 1 a.m. Then I wrote three charts till 3 a.m. because the next day I had to get four songs done before I went to Cabo. Meanwhile, I'm thinking about this speech I have to deliver on Sunday. And there's the music component, there's my deck component. There's the speaking component, and I hadn't written one, <clears throat> one word of that speech. So that was an extremely intense full wow. day. But most of my days, I tend to go to bed at three to four a.m. and I wake up at ten. And uh, the first thing I do in the morning when I wake up is I have water with a uh, with a lemon, half a squeezed lemon, and then if I'm doing perfect, I'll do that. And then I'll have a glass of celery juice. And then I can't wait. I'm all amping up because I can't wait to have three shots of espresso. <laughs> That's like your one guilty pleasure, isn't it? No, I drink whiskey and wine. Okay, you drink whiskey and wine. Yeah, but, I, so what's your what's your eating like during the day, Kenny? Well, I'm, I'm de I am definitely not a vegetarian. I eat like uh, this morning I had egg salad and gluten-free toast. I also had a scoop of peanut butter because if and, and an apple. Now the sugar and the fat will curtail your 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 um, your hunger. You mm -hmm. know when you get fat, your body's craving sugar and it's craving fat. So that's why I did that. I have to be careful because I'm a, a nut junkie. So, so am I. That's why I can't lose weight. I've been eating so many nuts. I love nuts anyway. Exactly. I know. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so, so if you and I got together, we'd probably bang our heads trying to get into the peanut butter jar. Oh, forget it. And you, know sun, what? You, know, you know Trader Joe's sunflower butter? It's my favorite in the world. It's like the best. Oh. Well, I'll tell you what. If When I come visit you, I'm going to bring two jars of peanut butter for you and two for me. It's <laughs> not just... It's not, it's not just... <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> when this pandemic hit, I you know got extra groceries... I, I load up like 30 jars of peanut butter because if the world ends, I want that peanut butter. <laughs> you know? Oh, God. And I eat it with an apple also. But, okay, so here's the thing. Like, I've cut that out the last couple of weeks because... Me too. I did the same thing. Exactly. And then I, I get, also I, eat a handful of pistachio nuts. And I, I don't think I can do that anymore either because that's killing me too. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I did the same thing. I, God, we are on the same plain because i was i gained three pounds i went yeah no, you gained three pounds i have the covid 13 i have to lose 13 fucking pounds i'm losing my mind i can't do it 
and I speed walk every day and I use do weights and I do well, well okay well, he, it, it, when it when it's not coming off or it's coming going on it's diet so what you know what I do you know I'm the type of guy I don't know about you, but I'm the type of guy that even in the middle of the night, if I go to pee, I look in the mirror to see if my how my gut's doing. You know, I, there's a rule of thumb for me. Make sure your tits, I don't care if you're male or female, your tits have to be in front of your stomach. I'm sorry. I even told my 95-year-old mom that. She just said, oh, Kenny. <laughs> said, okay, so, so you eat a lot of vegetables. Okay, so, so yeah, so... Um, now, I tend, so sometimes I'll do the protein shake, too, because i got a lot of protein. If I do a shake, I put in coconut, no dairy, except for cheese. I t uh, that's my cheating. A little bit of cheese. But no dairy. I'll use coconut milk with no sugar in it. And then I'll put uh, you know, the right protein. I've got this great right. protein stuff. I put a scoop of green food in there. I put fish oil. Really, really important. It's great for everything, even your hair, but not my hair. Um, but I bruise from fish oil. I had to switch to flaxseed oil. Fish what? Oil me, fish oil made me bruise. Never heard of that in my life. Yeah, I had to switch wow. to flaxseed oil. That's yeah. interesting. So, well, the Omega Three is like it's. Well, I got the Omega Three Six Nine. This is good for like third. You know, it's good for all your organs, your your skin, your your liver, your 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 everything. So. Uh, so I put that in there, and I put a, a blueberries. I put a. And in what form do you put fish oil in your shake? Well, my, I have a, a a guy who created fish oil that tastes good. It's got an orange flavor to it. Yeah, I'll have to turn you onto. He's a he was like a badass chiropractor doctor guy. Anyway, he created. This, I can turn you onto it, and uh, uh, so yeah, and a cup of blueberries and a scoop of peanut butter. And that, uh -huh. that, yeah, because there's the blue, the sweet, and and blueberries are killer for you. So, I didn't do that today because I had the eggs, apple, and peanut butter. Now for lunch, I had a little more of the egg salad, uh, two slices of Trader Joe's uh, turkey breast, and some tuna fish. So protein, protein, protein. Um, Where's your vegetable in there? I've got a I've got a salad in the fridge in my studio. Yep. And uh, and then, you know, it's really vegetables. I don't try to do too much fruit during the day. But if I get a sweet tooth, I'll go to figs or an apple, that type of thing. Um, and I'm just always thinking, oh, by the way, I'm a, I'm a supplement junkie too. So I've got a lot of stuff. You know, okay, uh, look, let's just get to, right to it. The eight, the, the eight, the eight steps to a healthy life for Kenny Aronoff. Yeah. I call it, it a healthy life is a wealthy life, or a wealthy life is a healthy life. And so this is my whole formula. Okay. And I have a gym in my house. So lifting weights, it's not just about, you know, getting big biceps, but lifting weights, it makes you strong, yes, but it also elevates your hormone levels, or in my case, keeps my hormone levels up. Lifting your, elevating your hormone levels also elevates your immune system. Okay, cardio. Cardio, it's the only way to exercise the heart. Right. Heart goes, you go. So, and um, and and this also elevates your hormone levels and also then what, elevates your immune system. What do you do for system. cardio, Kenny? I have an elliptical upstairs. What do you do for cardio? Um, I have uh, an elliptical and I also got the new Nordic track, you know, the whatever, the 2-2-I. Two, two I mean, it's ridiculous. 
You know, you can go on walks all over the world, every place but the moon. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I have a full gym with weights, you know, in my in my house. And um, yeah, and so then the third thing is now we've talked now about endurance and strength. The right. third thing is, is stretching. So I, I could do always better than that. But the stretching is some form of yoga, some sort of stretching, anything to create flexibility. All is right, there the, an order that you do these three things? No, uh, like typically, if I'm going to do both cardio and weights, I'll do cardio first. Okay. If I'm only going to do one thing in the day, most likely it's going to be weights. <laughs> I can tell. And I and I move I move fast through it. I know exactly because I had a trainer for a long time, and I'm not doing what I'm doing now is I used to lift much bigger and longer. Now I can do my whole routine in 20 minutes, 30 if I want. But I go bam bam. I do three different uh groups like i'll do flies everything is 20 or 25 reps flies 25 then i'll do my back so you, you're sculpting your body the back creates the v uh -huh. the flies of course like i said gotta develop keep the chest up there and then i go to um shoulders now that creates this so the shoulder and by the way this is me out of shape right now you know, usually, I'm, you know, because I've been traveling, but the shoulders. So I go bam, 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 rest for about two minutes. Then I go into a bench press, you know, a standard bench press with the bar and the dumbbells. Then I go into curls and then I go into triceps. And now you've done six groups. Then I'll do squats. Now you've done everything. Now, if usually I'll do that whole thing again. Uh, and if I'm really going for it i'll do it a third time and then it, you know so that's that's is it more it, and, about the the amount of weight you're doing or the amount of reps you're doing or is it both what's the what's the formula there uh, you know so i mean it depends what you're trying to do if you're trying to build like like muscle mass and so that you can really see it no i'm not <laughs> <laughs> you might be this this the weight that i need to you know bench press <laughs> I oh, probably God. could. I, I, you'd be on the floor. You'd, you'd be passed out on the no, floor. No, no, I wouldn't. Me. No, oh. no. Yeah. Well, maybe I could do it once. No joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, uh, the um, yeah, so for, at this point, I like to do reps for endurance and strength, and it gives me size. If I wanted to get more size, then you go and you do three sets on one uh, type of uh of uh, exercise let's say if i was to do flies i'd do three sets of flies and i just keep going up in increments and every set you do less reps because you're adding more weight and that and you and and the true way of doing it is you go till exhaustion so if i'm doing flies you get to the point where you're like uh, you know you can't do anymore then you've really tapped you know you've really gotten the most value out of that exercise and then i mean there was a time where i was like <laughs> it was a little while, quite, a little while ago, where I was in so fit, it was ridiculous. First of all, my, I mean, it was even four years ago. My, my, my uh, biological age was like eighteen years old compared to other eighteen-year-olds. But I, I, I said to my doctor, but yeah, but most eighteen-year-olds are fat and obese now, right? <laughs> so anyway, but the point is that he, this guy. I was so fit when I was living back in Indiana. I would do that type of exercise. And when I was resting, I was boxing. 
or climbing a wall or doing cardio. It never stopped. How much time a day do you do you do do you focus on fitness? Would you say? Well, now the most is is thirty minutes. Unless I'm doing cardio. If I do cardio, I do thirty minutes, and then I do weights. I'll do it in twenty minutes. But I'm so busy, man. I mean, it's. I have to say, I got to get back to making that. You know, um, it's not can't be hit or miss. But I naturally get real antsy if I start not looking the way I want to look or feel the way. Looking how I look is probably more important than how I feel. I mean, I, I, I just, uh, I don't I know. I if I don't it. like the way I look and it starts seeing, I'm like, no, 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 no. I get right to it. So I don't go very, very long and let myself get out of shape. So, um, so wait, and, Kenny, so if you, if, let's say you put on the three pounds, what are you going to do to dial that back? What are you diet, do you diet, diet okay, is so number what, one. What, how is your diet going to change if you, if you want well, to? Well, you got to cut your fat and sugar out immediately. So because I'm a nut freak like you, I got to cut that. You know, I was getting to, you know, you, I mean, if you get a snack, I mean, nuts are not the worst thing to snack on as far as health. But I, yeah, but fat wise. But puts on weight. Yeah. yeah. So me, the thing that I can cut, if I don't eat nuts for a week, I see the difference right away. You're eating nuts and you're doing cardio. I mean, you get you 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 really focus your diet and cut out the crap and the sweets. And and here's the tricky part for me, because I go to bed so late and I might leave here at two in the morning. Right. I get home. I'm starving. Yes. And I eat. And that's the worst time yes. to eat. So what but are you it, eating when you eat in the middle of the night? Well, before I go to bed, I mean, shit. That's it's it's not good. I mean, I eat, I can eat a lot. I mean, I'll eat. All right, my big cheating, my big like bad no no, popcorn from Trader Joe's, <laughs> bad, yeah. bad, um, or rarely, but every so often I'll have some cereal. I don't even. It's like when I mean cereal, it's like, you know, like uh, Cheerios with no sugar on it. You right. know that kind of thing. Right. But um, let me think. What do I do when I eat at home? It could be. It, it could even be just uh, you know, gluten-free toast with a turkey breast, uh, with a just. A, oh, it's a great sandwich. Uh, uh, peanut butter, turkey breast, a lot oh, of it. Ah, peanut butter and turkey. Yeah, uh, peanut butter. You got salt and then a, a slice of apple. Wow, I would never. Slice, wow. Yeah, because you've got proteins. You got salt and sweetened. What is it? Sugar and salt together. I, I like that. So I'll stack a lot of meat, but that's you know you shouldn't be eating at two in the morning. I know. You know. So and, and what is a typical dinner for you if you're being good? Oh, it'd be like chicken, vegetables, uh, uh, chicken and vegetables and a vegetable. What's your like proportion? Because my cardiol I have a cardiologist now. That's how old I am. He said it should be seventy percent vegetables. 30% protein. That's a hard ratio to get going there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not probably, I'd probably, I'm probably flipping it, but he's right. That's yeah. probably the way to do it. But, um, uh, God damn, I'm, I'm a meat guy. You know, I was in Mexico doing a show with, with Fogarty and I decided to treat myself to like an amazing dinner. So I had, uh, I had a gazpacho, a vegetable bean Perfect. soup. Uh -huh. Yep, it was great. The cook was amazing. Then I had a mozzarella and a, a zucchini thing hors d'oeuvre, which was unbelievable. 
and then my uh, my main course was uh, was a fillet, and uh, it was badass. And I mean, I, I don't eat red meat often, but I love it. I could, if I could, I'd eat it every day. But I love it. I but do. it does make you feel a little heavy. And uh, that night after the show, because I'd had the steak, I didn't really have that much afterwards. So I was, which is kind of unusual, because I would after a show I would be typically very very hungry. Not not uh, not right after, but maybe two hours later. Do you carve up when you're playing the drums? No, uh, I try to. I don't change. I don't do anything different. I eat the way I do. What I might not do is eat a steak before I'm going to play a show right, because right. yeah, it's just heavy. Um, uh, but I would eat like okay, like before a show, I might have a salmon, a salmon with lots of vegetables and a salad. I was just going to ask if you eat a lot of fish because I was told to eat fish at least a couple times a week, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I like. I love fish. I love salmon. And I love tuna fish too, you know what I mean? And I love, uh, yeah, I love fish. I love, you know. So decant, all right, so this is my big question with my new fish edict. Does canned fish count? Like, does I, tuna fish count? Well, it's fish, isn't it? I don't know if it has, like, the same nutrients and stuff when it's in a can. I've been wondering about that. Oh, well, I, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, nothing's as good as getting on the end of the boat and reeling it in and cooking <laughs> Have the grill going somewhere. Come yeah. Put it on the grill. That's a whole different ball game, you know. Um, so anyway, the uh, uh, we were talking about the know, lifting weights, cardio, mm -hmm. stretching, uh, a diet is the next thing. So we've talked about that. Uh, the next thing is supplements, and because I work these crazy hours and I travel and I work seven days a week, seven nights a week, I'm not the guy. You know. By the way, at the end of the day. The way I unwind is I'll watch a movie, you know, from like 2.30 to 3.30 or whatever right. it is. Mm -hmm. Until I start falling asleep. That's just for me. I don't have to think about anything. It just kind of get lost in the movie. So um, anyway, the supplements I take in the morning, I get my vitamins out. You know, I've had amazing uh, ultra. It, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, multiple vitamin, but it's made by Pure. P-U-R-E. This is all my doctor, my medical doctor, hooked me up to this. And this company is really good. You can get it on Amazon. Just put in P-U-R-E, pure. Uh -huh. It's called Ultra Nutrient. If you just took Ultra Nutrient and took fish oil every day, you'd be rocking. So I take the Ultra Nutrient. You take one in the morning and one later on. And then... Um, I also uh, there's a whole bunch. I take of like thirty supplements. Are you kidding me? Oh, okay, good. good. No, but it's probably too much stuff. I take so much stuff; it's crazy. It might, yeah, it might be. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. might be. Um, I can't. Okay, I take a lot of vitamin. I've been uh, a big advocate of vitamin D three, oh, yeah. which is a big immune booster thing. Yeah. Uh, and I take when this pandemic started. My doctor said take quercetin. Quercetin yeah. will surround your cells protect it from viruses getting into your cell. You might get the virus, but it won't be as bad because it's not in your cells. And I take zinc. Zinc is, is, is for a man, also converts, uh, will, won't allow things to convert into estrogen as much. So uh, for a man, that's great because, you know, you don't, you don't want estrogen. You want, you want testosterone. And there's no lack of testosterone in Kenny Aronoff, that's for sure. <laughs> I get that. I get that. <laughs> Dude, you know, I am like too much zinc can affect 
um, taste and all kinds of things. And also like I, I'm going to an eye guy now mm -hmm. and he said too much zinc for some people can be bad. And well, no, absolutely. And so I should back up and say, once a year I get a blood test, an executive blood test as they call it. My doctor then will say, oh, okay, pull back on you zinc pull back on your D it's all oh, blood good. work. Uh -huh. Yeah. The blood, the blood work tells so it doesn't lie. Right. It will tell you what you're at. Of course it is a snapshot at the moment, but right. so I use that as my reference and I may even go to twice a year, uh, put at some point just to make sure I'm like, cause things can change fast. Um, so and what then, kind of doctor is looking at your blood work. He's got two eyes, he's got a nose, and no, he's got I teeth. No, I mean, is it, is it an internist? Who, meanwhile, if anybody no. tuning into this show would never believe I'm talking to a drummer. It's like, this is like a health show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what no, it, he, he, he was a regular MD, and mm -hmm. now his specialty is uh, TBI, you know, post-traumatic PTS and TBI. He's a brain expert. And what, what, and what he did his research, he's really big on research, mm -hmm. is that a lot of people, uh, let's say, just let's take the obvious, football players, boxers, people in the military. You get traumatized, you get brain trauma from right. just those environments. Right. You know, you get pounded in the head. And right. if you take an MRI of the brain, you'll see it's pretty similar, all these people. But one thing I learned from him and from this documentary that I, I I saw that he was involved with, I had no idea that emotional trauma shows the same brain scan. Wow. So, and I'll give you an example. In this documentary was the head fire chief from 9-11. Yeah. That guy was a mess, suicidal, traumatized, okay? Right. Another person was sadly was a, a girl in the Navy who got raped and then twice and the Navy tried to cover it up. She was emotionally traumatized by it. Now, uh -huh. what my doctor did, he handled he handled her and uh, another doctor handled the 911 guy. Uh -huh. What they, what they do is they take they take their blood uh -huh. and they see the trauma shows up in your hormone uh, palate or you, you can see that you're not balanced. There's some serious problems. The trauma shows up in your blood work. And wow. so what my doctor does is he balances you out with like, it might be testosterone, DHEA, vitamin D, whatever it is. He has a protocol that he does that um, will elevate and help. And I'm real good friends with this, you know, ex- uh, a Marine, I think he was, and he was an explosive expert. He got blowed up, his body got, but I know him pretty well. I've had dinner with him, and, he, you know, he said that Dr. Gordon, my doctor, saved his life. He balanced him out, and he's on this protocol. Wow. The girl, she ended up getting all balanced out. The guy, the fireman, balanced out. Mark Rippon, the quarterback for the Washington Redskins, who I was a major fan of, He's in that movie, and from football and some other emotional trauma, he was suicidal. And he got saved by getting going to one of these doctors. It might have been my doctor even. And they, they, they do the blood work, and they say, oh, wow, we can take care of you. 
Now, like the military, what they usually do, I mean, it's sadly, they just say, uh, here's a, uh, you know, they give everybody the same packet of, 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 of uh, supplements or, or medicine or whatever. But each individual is different. And you can only see that individual difference if you get a blood work done. And then you make the adjustments to the patient based on what they see in the blood work. And so this doctor is phenomenal. And so, you know, I, uh, you know, uh, he's also into staying young, you know, basically. So he looks at your blood work and says, okay, you know, I think we need to adjust this. Pretty much, I'm I'm always doing pretty good. But he, on your note, he did reduce my zinc. I was taking this amount and he reduced it because, mm-hmm. you know. And another interesting thing I like about him is like, so I take this pregnenolone, pregnenolone. It's, I take it at night and... Um, it's a, I think it's a hormone, but you you can get it through pure. You know, it's a natural. It's, it's not a. Uh, you don't have to have a prescription or anything. And he said, I was taking it. He said, you know, your pregnenolone's a little down. I think you should double up. Interesting. If you take twenty five, if I take twenty five milligrams of this, it makes me tired, which is great. It's kind of like makes you go to sleep. Right. If I take two, I start speeding up. It's the other way. Wow. So I said to my doctor. He said, Kenny, the blood work tells me something. I tell you to do this, but the ultimate result and truth is what is your body telling you? Wow. It makes you speedy, then you take one, no matter what I say. Wow. And that's that is very cool. That's very cool. So did anyway, you did you find a difference when you started doing these supplements with him and the blood work? Did you notice a difference in yourself? Yeah, I lost all my hair, and I got <laughs> I got really really pretty suddenly. No I'm joking. I um, I, <laughs> I I started with another guy in Indiana, and uh, yeah, I did. I mean, he made it kind of was like I'd learned a lot of stuff from the trainers I've been with because really mm-hmm. good trainers are very aware of diet and supplements, mm-hmm. and I always have trained with guys that were professional. Com- they competed in, you know, uh, bodybuilding. Right. So they're very aware of the whole package. So I went to a doctor, and yeah, he was the one that opened, you know, got me the best protein powder, got me the best green food. We we do blood work. We started to discuss all this stuff, and we right. added supplements. And so, yeah, that was the beginning. Then when I came out to L.A., I had to find somebody to do that. It, it's 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 got to be for it to really work it's got to be part of your life it's got to be a part of your life and exercise you know is 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 and, and health is the number one thing the uh, you know the eight steps to a healthy life to me is the foundation to you know happiness both mentally okay, wait, I don't think you gave us all eight give us the rest of the eight Okay, so after supplements, let's talk about uh, water. That's number six. Now, you can live for 40 days without food, but you can only live three days without water. Every organ in your body needs water. I'm a little bit sloppy on that, but you should drink half your body weight in water. So, yeah, I know. How is this stuff? How is like sparkling water that has natural flavors? Are those not good? 
Well, nothing's as good as water, water. Right, I know. I used to think drinking beer, is that... (laughs) (laughs) I've had one beer in two years. Why? It's fattening. Right. And you have to drink a lot of beer. Whiskey, you can only drink so much whiskey. I mean, you know. (laughs) So um, if you want to wake up the next day and do what I do. So, um, yeah, water's important. So I could drink... I could do better in that department. But anyway, that's personal. The next thing is one of the most unhealthy things for a person is stress. All this stuff I'm talking about gets really taxed. In other words, all the supplements and all the, no matter how you eat, if you're stressed bad, this it kills all of that. So how do you get rid of stress? Well, one of the biggest ways is some form of meditation. And it, it doesn't have to be what you think it is. It could be literally just put on some be- nice music, shut your eyes when you're stressing out. And another thing I do, which is a great exercise, mm-hmm. is is which is very in right now, is breathing. And there's a guy called it's Wim Hof. Right now, <laughs> it's very in. Have you have you ever heard of Wim Hof? No. Okay, check him out. They call him the Ice Man. This is the guy, yeah, the Iceman. Wim Hof, it's W-I-M, and I believe it's H-O-F-F. This guy is a trip. This guy, and I did a speech with him, with it was 20 of us, many years ago, and he is, is able to do this breathing exercise that allows him to, like, climb Mount Everest in his shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, he wow. swim the North Pole. And those aren't those aren't my goals. But what breathing does, it's a stress reliever. It's a stress reliever, and it's it's also gets rid of inflammation. So let's just take this out. Let's say there's a in Africa there's an antelope or something, and a lion comes after it. And the antelope runs and gets away. First of all, when the antelope realizes it's being it's about to get killed. Yeah. Can you imagine the stress level on the antelope is way up to the roof. And then it gets away. Have you ever noticed how they go, an animal will just shake itself? That gets rid of the stress. So the breathing, which is like, like that, you do that 30 times. And I mean big breaths. Let your stomach go out so you expand and do a real full breath. Not, but like, Full breath 30 times, and then you hold your breath, you let your air out, um, not all the way, but you keep a little bit in you and try to hold your breath for a minute, okay? And then wow. when you're done, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not great at holding my breath. So when I'm done, would you let, you let, you suck in your air, so you go, when you're done, because you're gasping for air, you get a deep breath and you hold it for 15 seconds. And you repeat this three times, except the next time you're supposed to hold your breath for a minute and a half, and then if, and if you can, two minutes. But my point is, on the way home from the studio at night, I do it four times. Three times through my mouth, one time through my nose. And through your nose, it does a whole other thing with uh, nitrogen, oxygen, whatever. It's a whole different thing. And this all affects your brain. It also, once again, is a stress reliever. Meditation, and I mean, there's all kinds of different things you can do. Sometimes there's an exercise someone taught me 
that you just do this. When you're stressing, you do this with your fingers. You know, just to calm and shut your eyes. Calm down for 10 minutes. Get rid of stress. All right, finally, number eight, which is, I have to work at this, is sleep. Uh, sleep, <laughs> yeah, not good. I'm the type, what you, the ideal is to get seven, eight hours. Uh, I get tend to get six, but I wake up about 80 times. That's it. That's the yeah. whole deal. Waking I'm, up a, I'm, I'm basically a hot dog on a grill. <laughs> I'm rolling, and then I roll that way, and then I roll that way, and then I roll that way. So, you know. Yeah. So, how, what do you what do you do to to improve your sleep? How do you how are you working on improving your sleep? Are you? Well, I mean, ideally, you don't watch. You know, the sleeping experts, and I know a bunch of them. You don't look at your phone. You don't look at the computer. You stay away from all that energy thing. And a good thing to do is to, you could meditate. Now, what I do when I get in bed, mm -hmm. I have this thing called grace. G-R-A-C-C-E. I created it. It's an acronym. The G stands for gratitude. I start thinking, you know, I'm grateful that I'm in this comfortable bed. Or I'm grateful that I know Vicky now. I'm grateful that I, I'm a busy mofo and I just love work. I'm grateful, blah, 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 whatever you say. Then the, the A is I appreciate Vicky because she invited me on a show. I appreciate and I go through all these different people that I actually love. And I just think, and, and this is all positive, beautiful energy. Then I go, see, uh, no, R, I forgot R. R is respect. I'll go, first person I respect is me. Wow. Yes, yourself first. Respect yourself for who you are and what you do. Wow. I'm a, I'm a very, I'm very hard on myself. You know, it's just the way I was raised. I'm very, very competitive with myself. I'm a fighter. I'm not a fighter flight guy. I'm a fighter fight guy. And I've learned how to be very focused and disciplined. I have a saying, it goes like this. I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. Mm. And that is a running back in football. The greatest running back in the NFL does not score a touchdown every time. These guys are the most powerful athletes on the planet. But they spend their entire career focused on one thing, end zone, end zone. They break their leg one year. They recover, end zone, end zone. So don't focus on anything but your goal, end zone. And so, so when you respect yourself, it's very humbling because you you could some sometimes I or I used to when I was younger would be which was just last year. Uh, you know you can be very critical because it's only natural. Think about this. Uh, let's say I'm 18 years old. I've got my teacher screaming at me, no, your technique's wrong. And he's telling me, he's constantly correcting me. My coaches, when I was on a varsity sports, constantly drilling you. Your dad, mom, telling you what to do, what not to do. Your, your priest, if you're Catholic. Your rabbi, if you're Jewish, whatever. You've got people, you're young. They're telling you what to do. Then they leave your life and you pick up from where they left off and you start telling yourself what to do. Now, to elevate to the next level in life, you've got to start to put that stuff aside. In other words, 
if I would I would ask you a question, if I was your life coach, I'd say, are you happy where you are in your career? And if you said, well, I've kind of, no, I wish I could go to the next level. I've been doing this. I've been pretty consistent for 20 years. If you want to go to the next level, you've got to change something because what has been working for you is not going to get you to the next level. You have to right. get some new tools. So one of the hardest tools that I had to learn was to respect yourself and to get rid of shame and guilt and I'm a bad person or I'm a loser. You got to just got to get rid of that because when you say those things, it's like I said to some real, really successful guy. He asked me a question and I went blah, 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 blah. And then he says, his head went down. He physically went down. He went, yeah, I've made some big mistakes and I've had some failures. I went, no, I can't believe I'm telling you this. No, you have not. You've had experiences. Wow. You've had experiences that have brought you to where you are right this moment. The difference from saying, I'm a loser, I've, I've failed, I've made mistakes, to I've had experiences. It's a whole nother vibe. It's like, you know, trust me, I'm the guy that's very hard on myself. But what I do now, it's called the judge. Everybody listening to me, here's the exercise. Observe how much you judge yourself and others. Yes. You judge all day long. So yeah. the exercise is this. When you judge yourself, go up. Oh, there's that judge again. See how I'm being positive? Judge, I think you should go away. And you start saying, and then you try to respect yourself and say, you, like, let's say I, I'm doing a drum track and I didn't get it right, which is rare. Just joking. So I didn't get it. No, if I'm so hard, remember I told you I'll never be as good as I want to be. It's never as good as I want to be. So let's say I'm doing, I and I'm like, I got to stop. And I try to get complete takes when I play. I, I don't like to play. I want complete performances because they sound different. So right. when I, I'm about to be hard on myself, see, the problem with being hard on yourself, I mean, it's okay. You know, it's you can be determined to do better work. You can be uh, focused on the end zone, but not from a negative place, from a positive place. That's the, the takeaway here. So the judge can sometimes make you, ah, oh, you suck. And then you start, ugh. And now you're playing with a different approach where I'm a bad mofo. I got this. I got this. You're a bad mofo, Ken. You're a human being. You're going to get this. You always have gotten this. Let's see, how many times have you gotten this when you thought you weren't? Oh, my God, almost every time. All right. So you're going to get it and do a better job if you're in a positive headspace. Do you think the Jedi in uh, Star Wars, you notice how they're always so cool? They're not, so, they're just bam, bam, bam. And it's like all this destruction going on. That's what you want to be. You want to be the Jedi. You want to be the king that sits on the chair or a queen in your case. It sits on your chair and goes, there's all kinds of shit going on. You've got to make, everybody's depending on you to be cool and make the right decisions in the, in the, in the midst of adversity and battle and everything it's your job but we are the king and queens of our own realm right here so you have to be the king and you have to put that judgment person out of the way that shame that guilt and go this is not helpful to be there i'm not going to get a touchdown 
If I'm negative, I'm going to get a touchdown if I'm positive. Now, some people might say, well, because I did this many times, you get real angry and you get, you can be, you can, <laughs> you can be, anger is good, but over, over a period of time, it will wear you down. It's better to be positive and powerful than negative and, and, and powerful. Mm -hmm. That's my feeling. So, um, yeah, anyway. I, I think that, um, I don't know how we got from sleep to that, but um, the, I think that the, the, the sleep, oh, I know what it was. I was talking about grace. So mm -hmm. I got G, respect yourself. That's what we're talking about. That's, right. This is a tough one. All right, and, uh, and A is appreciation, which I said. Now, the two C's are this. this the first C is um, compassion. Compassion for yourself and for other people, mm -hmm. you know? And, and you want to have compassion. Compassion's a tough one because sometimes we get so caught up in ourselves, mm -hmm. um, you know, that you, 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 you're, not, you're not compassionate about what's, what other people are going through. And I think this, even if you say the word, like at night, at least you, you're touching it every day, just like my eight steps to a healthy life. If I'm aware of all eight steps, it becomes a part of my life. Right. Even, even, mm -hmm. even if I'm if I'm bad at one of them, you want to be thinking about them every day. So, compassion for yourself and for others. And the, the other C is I call it. It's caring. I call it self care. Self care. I was not great at this. I mean, so I take care of myself, but self care is knowing when to get out of a bad relationship. Self care is knowing when to remove yourself to be. To know when to remove yourself from a situation that's not good for you. Now, what made me successful? Mm -hmm. One of the one of the ingredients is I'm a, a Navy SEAL. I am the toughest mofo on the planet. I will stay there till I'm not taking care of myself. I will last longer than most people. I'll go longer till it's not healthy. So I'm now in the last couple of years when I learned about self care. Uh, it takes more strength for me to remove myself yeah. than to stay in. But I have to make this judgment. Am I going to be angry and miserable and frustrated if I leave, remove myself? What's the, the, the better place to be? To go a little bit further and stay till, up till four in the morning? Or remove myself and I'm laying in bed thinking about what I should be doing? Right. And I have to make that decision. That's self-care. All right, so the, and the last, the E, is empathy. And empathy is, that's a tough one, man. That's really understanding where somebody's at. I, I think that's what empathy is, empathizing with the, with even somebody you can't even relate to, a, 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 a person living on the street. You know, I prefer not to, you know, understand that because it hurts too much. But that's, these are things that, if I say these in while I'm asleep, first of all, I notice that I don't usually get, I get to about C and then I start crashing. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 these are all positive things and that's what helps me get to sleep. I go through GRACE, my GRACE acronym. I love that. I love that. I, I have a, an app called Calm and um, it incorporates a, a, a few of these things. Some of the elements of GRACE, it also it does 
takes care of breathing. It yeah. does a bunch of that stuff. And so if I put on a Calm app, I'm going to be asleep two minutes in. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, the, the thing is, is that, yeah, I tend to wake up after four hours. Now, I can, I can tell you. Oh, you do too? Oh, yeah, big time. I wake yeah, up so, a lot. Yeah, me too. Well, it's a sign of uh, higher, higher intelligence and beauty, I heard. But, you know, <laughs> maybe in your case, you got one. I, you got both. I got one. <laughs> so what do you do to go? So when you get up and... Like I know the smart thing I can do is put that meditation back on and it'll put me back to sleep yeah. instead of spinning or looking at yeah. my phone. Or, do you yeah. not look at electronics when you're sleeping? <clears throat> I try not to, but my w thing is if I read, I'll go back to sleep. And so a lot of times I just look at my phone. I know you're not supposed to look at the iPhone, but right. I'll read the news and that'll eventually put me to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Especially lately, the news is a lot more boring without the idiot in the White House. So, okay, so let's get to draw. We haven't talked about like who you are as as a musician at all. And um, fine. so, well, I, I mean, this other stuff is fascinating to me and it's something that everybody can tap into. We all need yeah. help with it, right? We all need guys to help with it because it's, it's a struggle. Yeah. So, okay, so let's get back to the COVID thing. It sounds like your life really hasn't been that different in COVID than it was before. Is that so? Other actually, than it's, it's more complex and more stressful, actually. When I'm on the road, everything is geared toward the show. You know, I'm the type of guy, let's start with uh, wake up in the morning. You know, I've got already have my vitamins laid out. I got my stage clothes laid out. I got my other clothes laid out. Uh, if we're going to leave that night, like with Fogarty, we have a private jet. So if we, if I have to take my, I'll go, I'll go to, uh, well, if we're going to leave that night, I have to have everything ready so that when I check out of the hotel, you know, we're going to go to sound check, we'll stay there. If we're not going to check out of the hotel, uh, we're going to leave my stuff there, but I'm always preparing for sound check in the show. So, you know, I have a routine. And without getting into the details, I have a routine. I sometimes practice. I have a, a thing called, a, I have a 30-minute practice routine on a pad. I can do in my hotel room. Moving, I always practice where all my, both limbs, all four limbs are going. My feet and my hands. It's called the uh, functional practice routine. Because I have very little bit, uh, time is such a valuable thing in my life. That when I'm practicing, there's no bullshit. It's all regimented. I know exactly. I have a system down. I'll do it before sound check. I'll do it before the show. And sometimes I do it. How do you do your feet? If, you, if you're working on pads, how do you do your feet? I have foot exercises that are doing literally on the floor. Can you hear that? I do. I can. So if I'm doing like, you know, I have 13 hand patterns I go through. Right, left, right, left, left, right, left, left, the singles, doubles, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, or left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, that's doubles. Then the paradiddle, which is right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. That's a paradiddle, that's a rudiment, but it sums up the first four lines. Right, left is the first line. Right, right is the beginning of the third line. Left, right is beginning of the second line. Left, left is beginning of the fourth line. Right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, right. And I'll have three different foot patterns I'll go through all 13 hand patterns with just my foot heel down going boom, 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 boom. Those are quarter notes. These are twice as fast. Eighth notes. My foot's da, 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 da. Heel down to stretch the ligament. Then I do the left foot. Same thing. But Then I do both feet. 
playing eighth notes like I'm playing they have to all line up with the feet then I do the same exercise with my heels up because I use both techniques see I told you it's functional everything I do has a purpose then I it just goes on and on now sometimes I do this at three in the morning and I'll have I'll get a text from the keyboard player Kenny is that you above me <laughs> So now, why would you do it at three in the morning? If you if your gig is at eight, why would you do it at three a.m.? Because I'm Tom Brady. I want to wake up in shape. Wow. I want to wake up warmed up. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So wow. um, so so, but now that I'm home, when I was home, I immediately took four courses. As soon as the COVID hit, I took four courses. Two of them, I felt. Uh, one I went, two I went after. One was a writing course to help me be a better writer mm -hmm. and speaker. The yeah. other one was uh, a teamwork course, a twenty-one, a twenty-one day course with uh, Keith Ferrazzi, who wrote this. He wrote the book where I talked about leading without leading without authority, and, it, and this is where I learned about co-elevation. I was fascinated by this guy. I saw him lecture, and I went, bam, and I ended up having dinner with him. He lives close to me. Anyway, um, I took that course, and that that also helped me. Uh, with with my speaking, gave me some ideas, and I liked his whole his whole mind, the way it worked. And then I uh, I took a positive intelligence course that somebody suggested to me, and that's where I learned some interesting things about the going shifting everything from the negative to the positive. And you can actually see an MRI where you what it looks like with the negative brain and the positive brain. And I thought that was helpful in general, but also. I apply that in my speaking and my just whenever I talk to anybody. And then there was a fourth course I took with a guy who's a guru on health and opened my mind to all kinds of new things in the health realm. A guy like Joe Dispenza. Have you ever heard of him? He wrote a book. This guy got hit. He was like riding a whatever. He was riding a, a bike on this, on a, a, doing his bike exercise and a, a, a you know, SUV hit him. And he was going to be, he was a quadriplegic. And uh, he wow. completely healed himself. Wow. With his brain and his heart. Now, not everybody, look it, everybody has the ability to do that. He just happened to be, uh, let's just look at a river that was full up, filled with junk. He was able to get rid of all the crap and he could, he could actually, he actually did it. Wow. Uh, do the doctors, they didn't know what to say. I mean, this is not possible. But he wow. did it. He literally spent the whole day trying to focusing, and he was obviously focusing on 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 uh, on the right things. And by the way, and I I share this with people. <clears throat> if you want something, words are just ideas. Feelings are the truth. If you mm -hmm. say I want a million dollars, but you don't really believe you can get that, you won't get it. How you get to the part where you really believe it, that's up to you. I, you know, I'm still trying to figure that out. You can't, words are just ideas. That's what I'm saying. It's like, uh, they're just ideas. It's like writing How do you on translate your feelings into action? Well, if you feel it, if I feel something, I can turn it into action. It's getting it so that you feel it and own it. Mm. And that is the trickiest part. There's, I can't tell you the formula. But obviously this guy, Joe, was able to feel it so much that he made it 
happened. He instructed, wow. he instructed his spine to reconstruct itself, and he did. So I didn't, I'd never heard of this guy. So in this health course, that was just a few, one of the few things I learned from this guy. So it was very enlightening. But I was taking four courses. My head was spinning because I was doing the courses. Then I was doing the exercise. And then I was doing sessions. And then I was working on this project and that project and this and that. And I was like, whoo. And so- Practically, let's talk about the practical changes that COVID caused. Were you going to the store? Like I didn't, I didn't go to a store. I went to Costco for the first time yesterday. I hadn't been in a store. I haven't been in a supermarket. Were you doing all of that during COVID? Yeah. You are? Yeah. Uh, well, my doctor said, he said, you're going to be fine. You're taking quercetin, you're taking D, D3, uh, you're washing your hands, wear gloves. You know, I was very paranoid about, you know, I had gloves on. I, the way I looked like it was airborne. I wore a mask, uh, you know. Well, it I, is airborne. Well, I mean, I like to the point where, you know, a, a butterfly a mile away breathes on you, you're dead. You know, I mean, I, I took, seriously took my shoes off, wiped everything. You know, I went and, you know, washed my hands eight times a day. I always had a bar of soap. Uh, every, even in my studio, I was wiping everything down. Uh, and you're not doing that? You stopped doing all of that? No, I, I wear a mask. I got the two shots. I didn't even want to get the shots. I probably wouldn't gotten it or... But I didn't want to take a chance because when I, like, I just flew and I flew another time. And I thought, you know, we really don't know much about any of this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I spoke to a doctor, Dr. Heller, 85 years old, said, I'm, he's a big research guy. And I said, mm-hmm. Doc, look it. Should I, should I not? He says, Kenny, I would get the shot. I would get those shots. He said, I've done a study. 80 million people got the COVID shot and um, 80 million people didn't get COVID so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a couple of friends that, that did get it. They were a little overweight and, uh, you know, they're more susceptible. And um, he said, he, this guy and another guy and another guy who got it said, you don't want to get this shit. This hits every organ in your body. Anyway, I heard a couple of those things. I thought, you know what? I'll spin the dice on the on the shot, and uh, I don't want to get that stuff. And probably I'm the guy who won't get it because I'm so healthy. But I didn't want to take a chance because it seemed like it's so unpredictable, really, what's going on here. Am I 100%? Oh, man, I got the shot. Not, that shot's just no. Who the hell knows? So you know? what was it like when you flew when you flew? last week what precautions did you take well first of all i made sure i was in first class less mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. so not as many because that that plane was filled mm-hmm. uh the delta flight wasn't but the united was filled so i was up front nobody was sitting no no there was somebody sitting next to me but you know they give you wipe really like strong ammonia or whatever it is and i'm wiping everything down i didn't wear gloves uh other times uh, the other time I flew, I did wear gloves. You know, I have a mask on all the time, of course. I also, in the Delta, I could go to the Delta Lounge. And so, and I also got a COVID test the day before I flew, where I got the results back, so I knew I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, to the airport, I had a driver pick me up. We both wearing masks. You know, I would wipe things down, washing your hands all the time. Uh, I was a little nervous about being in Mexico, but they were very strict and Cabo about everything. Were they wearing masks in Mexico? Everybody, yeah, at the airport. And um, also, I had to, 
show paperwork that I had taken the COVID test to even get through, not even security, before you even get to security, had to wow. fill out a form, had to show that I'd, I showed them that I had gotten the COVID test. No, it was when I was checking in at the counter. Uh-huh. I had to show them that I was negative. And, and went, okay. they didn't care about having the vaccine. They wanted to know that you'd been tested. Yes. Interesting. That's what the, yeah. That was a United policy, United mm-hmm. Airlines policy. And so I had to, you know, dude, it's like you, you, flying now, man. It's like, whew, you better check with the airlines and what the rules are. So, um, and I, I know a United pilot, a captain, and I know a Delta captain. So I asked them, you know, and they say, yeah, you know, that the, the precautions are, they were all saying it's okay to fly. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, I do the same thing. Keep a distance at the hotel. Everybody's wearing masks. Uh, you don't have to wear a mask when you're eating, obviously, but everybody else is, everybody was wearing masks. Everyone. Did you have people in your bubble, Kenny, when, when COVID started and everybody was locked down and everything, did you, what was your life like? Did you see people in person? Did you not? No, no. The, my, basically it was home, studio, home. The only thing I did was grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or that, that was it, you know, or if I, changed? if I went, went, huh? Has it changed since then? I mean, other than going to Cabo, are you doing more things than you were doing before? Now no. that you're vaccinated? Uh, uh, no, I'm not eating out yet. Uh, no, I do actually, uh, when I go to Trader Joe's, mm-hmm. there's a Mendocino farms place mm-hmm. there. So I'll get like uh, a sandwich, but I'm eating outside. I, I, I've eaten outside for the first time in the last yeah. month. So, but because I go from my home to my car to my studio, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I would have done anyway, except I didn't, at night, at, I don't go to a, to, to a restaurant and have a drink with somebody and be all smooshed up. But basically, that's it. Or I'd go up, my buddy Steve Lukather lives right up above me. I'll go up there and, you know, I started by, you know, we... He, he was real paranoid. We were masks, and then we stopped. But we're, we're outside. We're keeping a distance. Uh, let me think. I'm trying to think. Yeah, and occasionally I'd see some people, but not that often. You know, it was like I, I was. I, I, you know what? I've been fine. It didn't affect me mentally at all. I was all. say the loneliness didn't affect you at all. Well, I live with somebody, so the, I'm married, so that that helps. Um, and um, I didn't. Uh, no, I'm cool. You know, when I'm here, at first I was really paranoid. There better not be anybody in this building, you know? And and then down the hall, just next door to me is a buddy of mine has a studio. And he uh, started, he didn't come in for a very long time. So it was just me. It's perfect. And then eventually he did, wearing masks, everybody wiping everything down, keeping a distance. I mean, he, and then the guy down at the other end, he's got a studio. Everyone's got a mask on, but I notice people are getting looser and looser. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I didn't wear a mask into the building today, but I'm not near anybody. You know, yeah. But I got a mask. I, I was my... leaving the, the the house today, and I forgot a mask for the first time. And yeah. I was like, "What?" And I like ran back in, and I was like, "Because I'm getting more relaxed because I'm yeah. double vaxxed and going into sitting outside at restaurants and doing things a little differently. Yeah. Um, so, all right, we haven't talked about the music at all. We got to talk about the music before I let you go. We got yeah. we to talk about the music. So yeah. 
So Kenny, you, you have had train. Oh, all right. So what motivated you to be a drummer? I know the answer to this. I'm going to ask you some questions. I know the answers to because everybody else might not, but what was, was that the first thing you wanted to do when you were a kid? What, what was the dream when you were a little kid? Little kid was just be happy and have fun. So it was always sports and music was always, they had pictures of me with my diapers dancing, you know, to the music. <laughs> I could barely walk on dancing to the music. So they were going, hmm, kid likes mm. music. And, and I was always, I have a twin brother, identical twin, so we were always playing sports. You know, by the time I was a junior, no, a sophomore in mm -hmm. high school, I was a three letterman varsity sports guy. What was, was your on, sport? I was badass lacrosse player. Wow. Yeah, that's big where you grew up, New York. Well, not the Bronx, but Long Island. So lacrosse, I was a tackman. So I was a big scorer. And then um, I was a downhill skier because uh, there's snow where I grew up. And then I was wow. soccer, soccer, you know. So, um, uh, but you know, I was just a super- so Was that the dream to be a professional athlete? Never. No. Never. What happened was, so, you know, I'm just a normal kid. And then I, well, I'm playing outside with my brother. My mom screams at us to come in the house. And I thought I was in trouble, which was usually the case. And uh, <laughs> I was, I'm the nicest kid in the world, but I was, it was easy for me to get in trouble. I just, what sign are you? I don't know the answer to this. I think we talked about it once. Pisces, Scorpio, Aries, Aries, Aries. That's Aries, Aries, Aries. I got all over the place. Okay. Uh, I'm Scorpio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got Aries. Yeah. Okay, I got so you. The Pisces, that's exactly what I am. The art, the artistic Scorpio, which you know what that is. And then the Aries, Aries, Aries is the drive that pushes <laughs> yes. it, pushes it through. So um, I, um, I, my, I got in the house and, and it was the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So when I saw that, I went, what the fuck is that? Holy shit, I got to do that. I said, Mom. I want to do that. Who are those guys? She said, the Beatles. I said, well, call them up. I want to be in the band. You got to call them up. Call them up. Call them up. I mean, that's what you ask your mom, right? And so she didn't call them up. I says, I'm like, forget about the piano. It's drums now. It's drums. She says, I, no, I think you need to stay playing on the piano. I don't know if it was the next week or very soon after. I said, I'm not playing piano anymore. And I ripped up the music and threw it at her. And I went running around. The kitchen table screaming, drums, 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 drums. Was it because of Ringo? Was it, did Ringo do this to you? It wasn't just Ringo. It was just the, the rock and roll. You know, it was such like the energy. It was like, what? Oh, man, I was just going nuts. It was just, but I, I was drawn towards drums. And it was just a natural connect. So uh, she didn't get, I got a drum and a cymbal, and I started my own band, called, and we played Beatles music. You know, all I had was a cymbal and a snare drum. I couldn't afford anything else. I was gardening at 25 cents an hour. <laughs> wow, yeah. Well. Yeah. And so, um, and uh, and then I just, all through high school, you know, grade school and high school, I played in bands. And uh, it was time to go to college. And, uh, you know, I'll, let me just jump. You know, the cool thing is 50 years later, um, I'm asked to do a CBS special called The Night That Changed America, honoring the Beatles for the Ed Sullivan Show. I get asked to, to be play with Don was in the band, and now I get to play with Paul and Ringo. I mean, it's so crazy. I come know on, so it's, yeah. it's awesome. But wow. in between, what a lot of people don't know, is there was a kid in my small little town, which was a very unique town, Stockbridge, 
with artists and very bright people. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra, three miles away, they had dance camps in the summer, Jacob's Pillow. They had theater, summer stock. I met, you know, Ann Bancroft, uh, Faye Dunaway, uh, Frank Langella, Mel Brooks, all these people just would come up to this town I grew up. Norman Rockwell was the illustrator. It was just ridiculous. I grew up in a utopia. So um, this kid was were getting you, were parents artists is that why you were in Stockbridge no. no but what happens is through the Berkshires this is the mountains but there was a big river that went from New Hampshire Vermont down through Massachusetts into Connecticut it's called the Housatonic River <clears throat> back then they had mills on these rivers paper mills and my dad worked for a paper mill. Uh-huh. It was a division of Peter J. Schweitzer, which was a division of Kimberly Clark. Mm-hmm. And my dad was a chemist, a salesman, and a research guy. And so they they chose this location, not knowing how amazing it was. Wow. It was this or Nina, Wisconsin, which would have been a whole different ballgame. <laughs> so, um, uh, but they were into... I mean, on the on our turntable was jazz and classical and show tunes, like New Yorkers. They're like, my mom like right. Barbara Streisand, Sarah Vaughan, uh, you know, oh, Frank Sinatra was her Beatles, right. and so forth. And so I grew up with music, and they'd take us to see the Boston Symphony Orchestra and jazz and everything. I was going to jazz concerts when I was like 11 years old, you know, oh, and mm-hmm. the best, like Stan Getz and, mm-hmm. and, and Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald and, and Dave Brubeck and, and so forth. So it was all around me. And uh, this kid was getting better than me. He was like eighth grade I, or ninth grade or something like that. And he, I said, what are you doing? You, you seem like you're getting better. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm taking lessons from Arthur Press, from the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I'm like, fight or fight. Well, I got to do that. <laughs> so the the night before my first lesson, since I'm a jock, I'm hanging out with the cheerleaders at a party on the mountain. The cheerleaders, the senior football guys, the senior soccer, they liked us because me and my brother, we had long hair and we were like twins and we were like these super friendly. Was your brother musically inclined as well? Yeah, yeah. we were in b- bands together. Okay. So I go down, I take a bus down to Boston, which is a two hour drive. And this is how it went. Arthur Press goes, what's your name? Kenny. Kenny what? Uh, Kenny Aronoff? Kenny, what have you prepared for me today? I'm like, nothing. He says, you haven't learned a marimba piece for me? You're not going to play me? I said, I've never played marimba in my life. And I'm going, well, (laughs) you have a timpani piece for me? I said, no. You see, he taught at New England Conservatory. So his... He had guys that when they were there, diapers were wanting to be in an orchestra. I'd give a shit about being an orchestra. The, I just wanted to get better on drum set. So he says, well, what do you play? I said, I play drum set. All right, let's come downstairs and let's see who you play drum set. He put uh, Chicago, Spinning Wheels by Chicago on. And I started playing, and I know the song playing. He just, 30 seconds in, rips me off. He says, go over there. And we start from the beginning. Now, this was a moment where I could have gone, I don't need that. I'm the one of the most popular guys in high school. I'm a jock. I got a rock and roll band. I'm a rock jock. Uh, you know, what is this? But something went off and went, wow. I've never been around that kind of guy. I want to stick around and see what I can learn from him. So I studied with him in my sophomore year, junior, senior year. 
in the summer when he was up, I'd take a lesson every week, and he'd kick my ass, man. Whoa, my God. It was almost like whiplash. I mean, he'd be yelling at me. I was just going to say, you, this sounds oh, like man. whiplash. Yeah. He, he, I remember him slamming me, and I'd do like four-hour lessons, and I didn't practice as good as I could have for him. But um, it was good enough for me to get into college at a small university, University of Massachusetts. Well, this was no school of rock back then. Rock and roll was, I was a self-taught drummer. There was nobody could even teach rock. It was all new. So I get into this school and, um, man, I am behind. And I knew I would be because all these kids. Now, why are you behind? Because these kids were in the, the marching band, the symphony band, the high school bands. And I was like, Fuck that. I'm in a rock band. Why do I want to play with a squeaky clarinet when I'm playing Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones in a club trying to pick up chicks? I mean, this is like, come on. So, you know, so they were always trying to recruit me, but I didn't want to have anything to do with it. So these kids, they could follow conductors. They knew the music theory. They were way advanced. So that freshman year, I was freaking. I remember I was really felt like I wasn't the most... Well, I was popular, but I wasn't the best, and I was really felt insecure. And mm -hmm. so I started, that's when I started practicing until they drove me out of the building, one or two in the morning, trying to catch up, catch up, catch up. Now, the three, the three top schools in the country in classical music, Indiana University, Juilliard in New York, Eastman in Rochester. Rochester's five hours up the road. So I said, Dad, I got to get out of this place. I'm not the best, but I want to be one of those three. Rochester's up there. I want to audition. So I arranged to audition. Drives me up there in the spring. I get in, but there's no room for me. They only will take 14 students because they want to make sure everybody's in an ensemble. Is and it conservatory so that if you don't write, that you get cut? It's that kind of program? Yeah, they're all very tough. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I... I'm back at UMass. I'm going, shit. All right. All right. This summer, I'll study with Arthur Press Percussion, and I got an Almond Brothers band. And I was talking to this hot cellist. Well, as hot as you can be in classical music. But anyway, <laughs> she, she was. I said, what are you doing this summer? She said, I'm going to Aspen. I said, what's the Aspen? She says, the Aspen School of Music. It's an elite program run by Juilliard in Aspen, Colorado. And I'm like, ooh, Juilliard. And her, this is awesome. I'm going to audition. Maybe I'll transfer to Juilliard, and I'll have a great summer with her. You know, I'm thinking. And so I go. So I I, I audition on tape, you know, and they, they want you to audition in three out of four areas. Timpani, mallets, multiple percussion, and snare drum. So I audition on all of them. Because so I figured, well, I'm going to give them everything I can. You know, I'm not the greatest. I'm just, I'm kind of like still top high school level. So I send it in. I don't hear from anybody. So last day of school, I got my dad's car loaded up with equipment. I'm driving away from my dorm. I'm like, shit, I forgot my, my mail. I go back and it looks like a check. I got accepted to Aspen. My my thoughts are I was a an alternate because you had to be there in two weeks. You know, you'd think people would plan, you know, and, <laughs> you know, so I go. And I'm nervous as hell. All right. I am the worst percussionist there by a long shot. These kids. Wow. Oh, man. These kids were there. A lot of them were from Juilliard. They had started at Juilliard Prep School. Wow. I mean, these 
kids were badass. They were New York finest. You know what I mean? Wow. They were badass. They and I'm, you know, I'm doing scales and they're playing four mallets and and then um, all these other guys were great. I got my ass destroyed up there, you know. But I hung in there. The teacher who taught there uh-huh. ran the department at Indiana University, number one school in music. I went, George. I'm going to Indiana. I saw the opportunity. This is it. I'm going to go to the top. I want to go to Indiana and study four years with you. That first year was just kind of a warm-up. And he said, just come back in January. I went, no. I'm going from here to Indiana. He says, well, you have to audition for four departments. He says, well, how do I do that? <laughs> and he was digging that I wanted it so bad. He said, right. I'm going to want to teach this guy. This guy's going to work his ass off for me. And that's how I got into UMass, by the way. The teacher saw that I was hungry. Wow. You know, like like when they, they have you sight read music. After you play your piece, they put music you've never seen before. They want to see how your sight reading is. Sight reading was horrible. So he says, that's okay. And I went, no! I grabbed the music back. I said, let me try it again. I, I started learning the piece in front of him. He kept taking the music away. I said, no. I kept, <laughs> and he went, well, okay. <laughs> wow. So George Gaber, the teacher said, you know what? He came back the next day and said, there are four teachers from four different departments at Indiana University here. And so I auditioned and got in. Went there, spent four years there, worked my way from the bottom to the top. And, um, he kicked my ass. I mean, I like walk, like give me an example, walk in for my first lesson. For some reason, I forgot a pencil and eraser. He said, you don't have a pencil eraser? He says, you get an F, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it's like, and he was right, because you, every rehearsal, every everything, I've always got a pencil, pencil, I have a whole pencil case with erasers and stuff to write everything down, because I can't remember. This is like I do the Obama inaugurations, 25 artists, you doing with bon Beyonce, Josh Groban, Bon Jovi, uh, Cheryl Crow, uh, you know Garth Brooks, uh, uh, you name it, all these people, and you're rehearsing right up to the last second. You don't want to fuck up. Kennedy Center, same thing. You don't want to mess up. You got the President of the United States there. You're doing a Zeppelin episode. Uh, you're honoring Zeppelin, and they're up there looking at you. Every note's written down. They're changing shit by the second. I wow. can't remember all that. I remember doing John Fogarty. I was playing in, in Vegas, and I had to fly to Moscow, get off the plane, go into the Kremlin, start a rehearsal that night. The next day, rehearse 32 songs, film and record in the Kremlin, 50-year anniversary for this band. They were there for 10 days rehearsing. There was another drummer there, too, but I couldn't make it until the night before. I told them, send me the music, but if you change any arrangements, you got to let me know. I write every note out. The whole way to Moscow, I'm... I'm rehearsing, going through and practicing count-offs, practicing everything, every note written out. I get there. The next, I set up that night. We run through something, but they change something. The next day, they had changed arrangements on every song and didn't tell me. It was insanity. I'm like, why didn't you, you can't, we have to film this tonight. You know what the answer was? The MD looks at me and he sees, I'm like, I'm cool, but I'm struggling. He goes, Kennedy, 
welcome to Russia. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. Anyway, the, my skills that I learned at, at school really paid off in the rock and roll world. Every year I was in Indiana Did you University. know you wanted to be a rock drummer? Because from what I recall, you play like every genre. Yeah. And rock was not your first choice, as I recall. Is that... Well, well, it was as a kid. Okay. okay, now, now, so, and this is what it leads to. So every year, I'm like completely, I'm very competitive. And so I want to be at the best school. Well, Tanglewood, with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, is, is the number one student orchestra in the country, if not the world. I auditioned one year to get in, failed. Second year, sophomore year in Indiana, to, this is a summer program, right. failed, strike out. I'm some, God damn it, I go back for a third, strike out. I go back for a fourth and I get in. <laughs> now that tells the story. That's perseverance. That's yeah. persistence. So not only do, is it the baddest ass orchestra, but I work with Leonard Bernstein, Sergio Zauer, Aaron Copeland, one of America's greatest composers, Arthur Fiedler. I am the premier orchestra. I graduate Indiana University. I get a job in Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. And here is the pivoting point. I turn it down. Wow. My parents were like, what? My friends were like, huh? I was going like, holy shit. Here's what happened. My brain said, you got to go to, you got to go to, you spent five years getting ready for this moment. Right. I, my brain said that, but my heart was like, I want to rock, man. I want to be in the Beatles. Wow. So, to, just to make a long story short, I went home, stayed home, humbly stayed at home now for a year, studying drum sex. They didn't teach that at Indiana University or at UMass, just the orchestral stuff. So, I started studying. Now, once again, I'm trying to catch up again. I'm studying with a teacher in Boston, a teacher in New York, practicing eight hours a day, playing in a couple wow. bands. I moved back to Indiana. Everybody tells me to start a band. The mm -hmm. business model was um, start a band, write music, get a record deal, record the record, go on tour. And after three years, we failed. It didn't happen. And everybody told me, Don't, what's in Indiana? You should go to New York or Nashville. Well, as I'm about to leave at age 27 to move to New York, I win this audition that I heard about this new guy that was on this new platform, you know, MTV's on the radios, on tour. He's just opened up for Kiss and he just fired his drummer the night before. And this, wow. this singer songwriter told me about this guy. I went, hmm, he wasn't my favorite music, but I'm thinking, wait a minute. Oh my God, he's touring records, TV. This has my, been my dream. Long and short of it, it's Johnny Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp. I auditioned five weeks later. I'm in L.A. making a record. After two days of recording, I'm fired. <laughs> Whoa. And why? the reason, reason why is because the producer had to get the record done in eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And he realized Kenny has... See, the purpose of a session drummer is really one thing, or any session musician, to get the song on the radio to be number one. That's it. So whatever ideas you come up with, whatever you say, whatever you don't say, whatever you don't play, should all be geared toward one thing. How do I get that song on the radio to be a hit single? Mm -hmm. So I have to learn to serve the artist or the band, the producer, the engineer, the other musicians. It's not about me, it's about we. 
Right. Not about me. It's about we. And I didn't know that. Because when you're practicing eight hours a day, it's all about me. Me. Right. But now I've had to learn the next way, the new way of, of thinking and being a team player. Well, here's a pivotal, very, very pivotal moment, a life-changing moment. John is telling me with the Chateau Marmont it, in, on the third floor in, in a room, hotel room, and he goes, you're not playing on the record. And he says, uh, you, I'll pay you for a week, and then you go home. And I said, no, I ain't going nowhere. I'm not going anywhere. And <laughs> the band was like, holy shit. Because <laughs> John was like, kind of like a football coach, tough guy. And uh, I'm sitting there going, okay, 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 okay. I'm going like, hey, listen. Am I still your drummer or what? And he goes, uh, he's all perplexed. He goes, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. And then I start struggling. I'm like, well, I'll go in the studio and watch those session guys play my parts on your record. I'll learn from them and I'll benefit from that. Uh, and you'll benefit because I'm your drummer, right? Silence. I'm like, shit. I go, all right, you don't have to pay me. I'll sleep on the, on the couch or whatever. He said, okay. He didn't pay me. And I stayed there. I mean, I was ashamed. I was felt like a loser. I felt like a piece of oh, shit. You have very ballsy. Yeah, well, I was in a fight or fight mode. I didn't know that about myself. But what was happening? He was taking away that thing I had felt when I saw the Beatles, which is when I saw the Beatles, I realized at that moment, before I even knew what these words meant, what my purpose in life was. And the purpose in your life, like I said, purpose comes from your heart. Words are ideas. Feelings are the truth. Truth and feelings are your being. In your being, your essence, that's who you are. There's where your purpose is. Follow that and you will be unstoppable, authentic, and undeniable. Mm -hmm. I'm the guy that can't wait to wake up in the morning and do what I do. But as you now know, I'm the guy that doesn't want to turn the lights off at night because I'm still digging what I'm doing. That, when you live by your purpose, you can't stop me. I am Superman. The only thing that will stop me is kryptonite. I just keep going until I smartly go, you know, you, you might want to just chill out for a sec. You know, the thing, you know, because I want to follow those eight steps to a healthy life. So when John said no, I was like, no, no, no. This is who I am. This is what I want. That was coming from my soul. My heart was screaming. No, 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 no. You can't take this away from me. That's what made me negotiate and say, I'm not going home. And John said in my book that he was, he was blown, not blown away, but he respected me for wow. that moment. Because in all his wackadoodle stuff in his head, he has a gift and he saw... He saw that thing in me. So I did, and, I, and I, uh, I learned a lot. I went home, felt like a loser, but I went home and completely shifted my whole way of, I realized I have to learn to play the drums to serve this guy's music. What is that? I figured it out, and then the rest is history. Wow, wow. So I don't even know where to go. There, there's so much music in your life. I don't even know where to go with that to... I can, I, I can help you on this. Okay, go ahead. Well, so I'm in a famous band. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, two years later, my goal was I'm going to make the next record. 
That was my goal. You're going to get on this record. I'm going to redeem myself. It's like losing the Super Bowl or losing the season and you're coming back. All right. So it's the hardest record I've ever made. John was going through a divorce. He almost died on a motorcycle accident a week before we go into the studio. I didn't know he was about to lose his record deal. He was a complete, you know, just so tense. He was like so hard on himself and demanded the same thing on everybody else. He was struggling because he thought he was going to lose his record deal for the second time. So this was not a fun record. I walk in one day and somebody's... The, I noticed that the producer's got this metal box. I went, what's that? He says, oh, it's a Lin-1 drum machine. I went, drum machine? I mean, this is 1981. There weren't that many of those. I'm like, those were plays drummers. He says, well, I said, what are we doing with it? He says, well, John heard the Bee Gees using it next door and thought maybe we should try this on this song that we were having a real hard time arranging because we were young. We didn't know how to arrange a song, and the song was Jack and Diane. Uh-huh. So I grabbed the machine. Here I go. Fight or fight. Adapted. Adapt or die. I grab the machine, grab the manual, and I go and I figure out how to program what I was playing in the machine, hand it back to them, and I'm in the, in the lounge going, what the fuck's going on? I mean, are drummers going to be replaced by machines now? Is this the new sound? The beads are using it. Now John's using it. Uh, Phil Collins used it in Air of the Night. Right. Uh, Hall and Oates had started using it, you know, in the early. I'm like, whoa, whoa. And then all of a sudden, three hours later, John says, so John wants to see you. I go into control and he says, hey, asshole, listen, that's, that's how that's how it's. <laughs> we need a drum solo right there after the second chorus. The machine's not cutting it. And I'm like, I'm ecstatic that I'm going to play on it, but I'm shitting in my pants because I realize if I don't get this, I could get fired. It happened two years ago. So the whole time we're getting drum sounds because they want John wanted the biggest drum sound in the world. Most of the time they used to record drums in like vocal booths, small rooms, because they could control the sound. But John wanted it in this big room and nobody knew where to put the mics. Nowadays you can do it in two seconds. But we were inventing a new thing. Right. Anyway, the whole time I'm thinking, I gotta what am I gonna play? What am I gonna play that's gonna sound great? going through car speakers, TV speakers, the radio. What can I do to make this song get on the record and maybe get played on the radio? I'm thinking. Anyway, eventually it's my time to come in. So I'm, I am so nervous. So the first thing I did was <laughs> the machine's going, goosh, 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 ka, doosh, doosh, doosh. boom, blam. That's what I did. I went bass drum to snare drum, boom, blam, and stopped. Like, ta-da! You know, and I look in the control room sheepishly, and everyone's going, "Yeah." Wow. And I'm thinking, I still got my job. <laughs> so I, everybody goes down the drums. So I thought I'll go up the drums. And I hit a dead end. I'm summoned in the control room. In my head, I'm nervous. I got half the people telling me what to play. The other half are telling me what not to play. And suddenly I went, Kenny, you're all alone. It's up to you to save your ass. So I started heading out there. I'm like 50 feet from the drums. I'm like, dude, your career is coming down to right now. 40 feet, what are you gonna play? 30, I have no idea. 20, Kenny, it's now. 10, I don't know. Uh, zero, I get to the drums. I'm like, holy shit, what am I gonna play? 
And all of a sudden, I, I don't know, a light went off in my head. I went, all right, instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, let's keep the bathwater. No, I mean, keep the baby. And uh, no, did, instead of coming up with a new idea, it'd be like this. If you had a room and the, there was furniture in it, you didn't like the furniture, you got two choices. Throw the furniture out and get new furniture. Or rearrange the furniture so right. it looks cool. I rearranged the furniture. So I thought, I'll take the same beat I was playing, but I'll start it later. That's what I did. I started a little bit. Instead of boom, blam, ba, 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 I went boom, blam, one, ah, ah, ah. It was all off beats. And John went, whoa, hit a cymbal. Before I could even look up, I went, ba, da, boom. And then I went down the drums, kind of emulating Phil Collins. Do, 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 do. Ran out of drums, and then I added a triplet. Blah, boom, boom, boom. And they're all going, whoa! And code. then Mick Ronson from Bowie's album, from Bowie's band was there, and he told John, have Kenny play a beat, and then you guys sing the chorus over it. So to make, long story shorter, I came up with this beat, and you know, and they all went, so let it rock, so let it roll, let the Bible Belt come save my soul. And all of a sudden, okay, all I know as I got through the day, and the song was now on the, on the record. All right. Nine. It's all in the moment. Yes, in the moment. Yes, that's in the moment. So after nine weeks of hell making this record, I get home and I go, I did it. It's like going to Iraq and surviving. <laughs> John calls me up two weeks later. Aronoff, Mellencamp. We only got four songs. I'm like, oh no. John fired two guys in the band during the session. Me and him almost got in a fist fight. It was horrible. Oh my God. Now we got to go back to the rehearsal, which was a bunker. We called it the bunker. It was like this little dog kennel built into, a, into the earth and we would practice in there. And the bottom line is we went back to L.A. four months later. The first song we record is Hurt So Good. Uh, this is a great inside story. I didn't remember this, but my, my guitar player in the band told me, he says, do you remember the vice president came to see us and listen to our music? I went, yeah, I kind of had a jacket and tie, right? Yeah. He heard, he heard Hurt So Good and said to John, I don't get it, man. I don't see it. You know, you should try to be more like Neil Diamond. John walked him to the door, kicked him in the ass onto the sidewalk. We lost our deal. But, <laughs> yeah, but somehow we finished the record and they started testing it on radio. And everybody was like, whoa, that's great. It tested so well, got the record deal back, re released her so good. It went flying up the charts. It, John made that record. He said, I want my record to blow the shit out of any song that comes before us and crush any song that comes after us. <laughs> and that's what happened because the drums were wicked loud. So it was like, ga, do, ga, do, ga, do, ga, 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 ga. It was like, whoa. And I'm... And so that got to number two and just stayed there. Mm -hmm. I, the tiger, kept us out because oh, Rocky, wow. Rocky had just come out. Uh -huh. So we're there. 
And so they it started to go down a little bit, and they went. They tested the rest of the songs on the album, and Jack and I, Diane was getting the biggest response. We were like, they were going, really? Okay, they release it. Went flying up the charts, became a number one hit. John's biggest number one hit single ever. Hurt So Good wouldn't go down. It stayed up there. Now we have two songs in the top ten. Nice. John's career completely blew up, and all of a sudden, who's the drummer? All right. So I, I, we go on the Aha record, the Scarecrow record, Jubilee, we're flying in private jets with Ritz Collins, we're selling out Madison Square Garden, you know, two nights in a row, LA Forum, blah, blah, blah. And then a life-changing moment happened. John, at the end of the last show of the Jubilee tour, he quits. He says, I'm quitting the music business for three years. Fuck this shit. I'm like, now, he didn't, but when he said it, it was pretty believable. I mean, <laughs> I was like, he means it. And I just gotten divorced, and I wasn't I wasn't a member. The, I was a member of the band, but I got paid, like, a right, salary. Right, you right, know, right. I just got a new mortgage. I did the math. I had five months' worth of money to pay my bills after the divorce settlement. I mean, right, right. five months, or five months. I had sessions booked, but what I decided the next morning, I freaked out the first night. The next morning I woke up and went, I've been working for one rock star for eight years. Now I'm going to work for all the other ones. Wow. I went to L.A., started doing sessions. I was calling anybody and everybody. And then a year later, Don Was hires me to do Iggy Pop. Don Was wins two Grammys while we're doing Iggy Pop. For Nick of Time, Bonnie Raitt, and Love Shack by the B-52s. All of a sudden, everyone's hiring Don to be the drummer. I mean, to be the producer. He hires me. I'm doing Bob Seger, Bob Dylan, Elton John, and on and on and on. How did you break in with Don Was? How did that relationship start? He he reached out to me. He just called me up. He goes, I thought he was a black man. He goes, hey, Kenny, it's Don. (laughs) Don Was. He says, how would you like to play on an Iggy Pop record? I went, Iggy Pop! <laughs> wow! He says, come down and meet me at the record plant. I go down there, and I see the three black singers. I go, I go up to Sweet Pea. I goes, are you Don Was? I ain't no Don Was! I, I'm like, oh shit, I'm so sorry. Sorry. Woo! I go up, those guys over there are laughing their heads off. I go over to them, the white guys, and they're laughing. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. When is Don going to get here? He says, I'm Don. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. They're good. So he hired me, and then I, and it just took off, and he just he loved it. You know, we've been working ever since. And um, so what happened was what this comes down to is I, I became the session drummer, and I started to use more and more of all that discipline from classical training and being able to write charts out and read. Suddenly, and then the next blessing which is amazing, which you touched on, which is very rare that you're, uh, usually you're in a band or you're a session person. But right. there's very few that do both. There's, 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 there's a handful that do both. Mm-hmm. Like a guy like Lee Sklar, who you interviewed, yes. he does both. You know, And he's like me in this regard too. But it's even more rare you get somebody who can play all the styles of music. Right. That's rare. And right. how do you do that? I have no idea. Don was saw that I could, so he'd hire me to do 
the Highwaymen, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. That country drummer doesn't usually go on tour with the Smashing Pumpkins. That's true. And that guy doesn't usually end up playing with B.B. King and Bonnie Raitt. And that guy doesn't usually play with Ray Charles and then go and play and do a Tony Iommi record from Black Sabbath with Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. And we almost How did you do that, Kenny? How did you cross genre at that level in all of those genres? Well, uh, I got lucky uh, in many regards where Don Woods would hire me to do all these different things especially when you started doing these TV shows or these things where I'm playing with 25 artists all on one show of all genres. Like I'm the drummer for Willie's 60s. I'm playing with Ray Charles, Waylon Jennings, Sheryl Crow, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's just everybody, Loretta Lynn, uh, uh, just everybody. And, you know, and then uh, they start to know who I am. And then people start to realize, see that this guy's a reliable guy. He can play everything. And he reads and it's all this stuff and then the Kennedy Center on us which was the Super Bowl of all Super Bowl oh I mean, that, my god that is that is the premier gig and you know I started to have relations in all these different genres the Smashing Pumpkins gig is interesting so to go on tour with Bob Seger it made sense because it was sort of Midwest rock and roll but while I was on tour with Seger mm-hmm. I heard that the Pumpkins uh, were releasing Jimmy Chamberlain Mm-hmm. in the middle of the uh, Melancholy Tour. So I went right to, I, I found out who the management company was, and I and they said, send me a fax of a resume. And <laughs> years later, they said, we, you, your fax was took our fax machine eight up 40 minutes because my resume was so long. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it was 40 pages <laughs> took up 20 minutes. Yeah. They were like, and so... So that I never heard from them, but two years later I did. Two years later I get a call from Sid Bernstein from uh, mm-hmm. Prime Management. He goes, Kenny, this is Sid Bernstein from Q Prime Management. We represent the Smashing Pumpkins. I'm like, what? What? Smashing Pumpkins? A record? A record? A record? <laughs> Am I going to get to record with the Pumpkins? And they were my favorite band. Now, this, mind you, this was the biggest alternative band in the world at that time. So he says, I says, record. He says, no, but uh, Billy, or we think that you, we would like you to audition for their Adore tour. That's going to happen this summer. Are you interested? I says, are you kidding? Absolutely. He says, okay. He says, the only thing I want to ask you is if you get the gig, can you promise me that you'll say yes? I said, well, I can't promise anything until I know what are the dates, right. when is rehearsal, and when am I getting paid? I mean, <laughs> I said, I can answer if I know some of that. Yeah. And so he said, what is your rate? I said, this is what I get. And he says, I said, what are the dates? And he says, and I said, well, I'm not on tour right now. And so he said, I'll get back with you on the pay. He got back to me. He says, yeah, that's fine. So I, mem- I learned every pumpkin song. And right before I fly out to, from L.A. to New York to audition, I find out that Billy doesn't want you to know any of the Pumpkin songs. I'm like, I mean, I was practicing eight hours a day. Oh, my you God. Know, I'd memorize, I'd write, I wrote every song out. I'd memorize, I'd memorize five songs in one day. 
Then the right. next day, I'd go do those five again and then uh -huh. memorize five more. Now uh -huh. I have ten. Then the next day, I'd do the ten. If I had them down, I'd move on to the next five. And wow. I'd just keep building. It wow. was insane. And so, anyway, I'm flying across the country. I get there. It's raining. I get to SIR. Billy doesn't even... It's like I get there maybe at 10 o'clock at night. Billy doesn't show up till 1. And he walks in... The, Darcy's like in her own world on the phone. James is just shy and quiet. So I'm ready. Billy comes in really friendly right to me. He says, Kenny, Billy Billy Corgan. I'm like, hey, nice to meet you, man. He says, he's taking off his coat and he puts on his guitar. He goes, look, we already know how to play fast and hard. I want to play more like uh, Pink Floyd vibey. He starts playing. So I go, cymbals, delicate. I add some toms, snare. And I'm like, this has got to go somewhere. So I just start getting into the groove. And I'm like, <laughs> go full tilt. Billy gets down, you know, real low, and he's we're like connected. Darcy's looking that way, and James is looking that way, and I'm thinking, wow, these guys aren't really vibing off each other, and so, and that was the Pumpkins' way, which I later found out. So then when we're done, I go, and this I think might have been what helped me get the gig. Mm -hmm. Uh, I said, well, Billy, uh, what is there anything else I can do to make it better for you? He smiled. Because I look back, I go, now after I knew him, I said, yeah, he's probably thinking, okay, I can work with this guy. So he says, just do more of the same. Played the <laughs> one more time, and I was out of there. And I was thinking, I didn't get this gig. I guess I'm touring with Fogarty next year, yeah, this, this summer. I get to the airport, and I get a call from Sid Bernstein. Sid goes, Hey, Billy wants you to tour them. He likes your playing. That was it. Bam. But if I had not faxed my resume in, and by the way, Sid Bernstein and um, Mensch, Peter Mensch, they went and saw me play with Fogarty at the Hammerstein in New York. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't an obvious match, but I think what I heard is they wanted somebody who was really solid, that could that that could kind of ground wouldn't not a easy to work with, not taking drugs, not drinking, you know, just somebody solid in the midst right. of craziness. That's my speculation. So that you know, and so then people see me with the pumpkins, and they see me on TV, and it just started to just, you know, and I I you went. Ever out. Did you call Kenny when you went? Oh my God, I can't. I mean, I imagine this happened a lot. I can't believe I'm going to get to play with. Yeah. I mean, so tell me some of the heroes that you got to play with that like were mind blowing for you. All right, one. This is a okay. I'm doing BB King and Bonnie Raitt in the same day with Don was Air America. I'm like, I'm your fucking BB King. <laughs> and he, he, I'm, I'm behind him. He goes after a take. Goes, drummer, <laughs> you're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> like wow. The next day, it was Elton John. Next two days was Elton John. I walk in, I'm like, oh my God, that's Elton John. And uh, I'm connecting, and he's funny. And he actually later on asked me to go on tour with him. I turned it down because I wasn't ready to leave Mellencamp. That's a whole story. So I was like blown away. The next day was four days with Bob Seger in the studio. And Bob was just so fucking cool. I was like... He's so nice. It was so badass. Then I flew to Atlanta, uh, Athens, Georgia, and did the Indigo Girls. 
and they were like, that's folk music, you know. They yeah. never had drums on their uh, records. So mm -hmm. I'm testosterone man <laughs> playing on their record for a week. And I mean, I just, I just knew how to adapt, you know, and kind of adjust. You know, then I flew back to L.A. and went right into a studio session with Willie Nelson, which is, oh, my God, Willie fucking Nelson, with Don Was. Wow. And then I did four more days with Seeger. And then I did Blaze of Glory with Bon Jovi. Now, the Blaze of Glory thing was a trip. I get a call one day out of the blue. Kenny, John Bon Jovi. I'm like, woo! <laughs> like, what's up, man? He said, Kenny, listen, I'm writing two songs for this movie. Would you be interested in doing it? I'm like, are you kidding me? When? He said, I'll call you in two weeks. Call me back in two weeks. Kenny, I got four songs now for this. This is really working out good. I'm like, even better. Said, I'll call you in four weeks. Two weeks. He calls me in two weeks. He goes, Kenny, it's working out so good. I've written 10 songs for Young Guns 2, and it's going to be a solo record. John Bon Jovi solo record. I'm like, oh, my God. Every time you call me, it gets better and better. And then he goes... I'll call you in two weeks and I'll give you the, we'll go over the details. Calls me in two weeks, says, Kenny, I got good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? I went, what's the good news? Says, Jeff Beck is playing on the record. I'm like, oh my God, it's just getting better. What's next? Santa Claus? I mean, Jesus. And he's one of my favorite guitar players of all time. What's the bad news? Well, Jeff wants to use his drummer, Terry Bosio. I'm like, <sighs> bummer. Well, Terry Bosio's a bad mofo. I mean, what can I say? All right, thanks. Have a good record. It's been going on this whole time. This has been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. So I'm like really bummed out. I'm trying to get, I'm bummed out. He's co-producing it with Danny Korchmar. So Danny calls you up. Hey, Kenny, Danny. Hey, listen, have your, your crew bring your drums to uh, A&M at 9 a.m. on Tuesday. And you show up at 12. I'm like, Danny? Have you talked to John lately? <laughs> yeah. I said, Danny, I'm not playing on records. I explained the whole thing. He, says, he starts laughing. He says, Kenny, Jeff Beck ain't going to be tracking with us. He doesn't do that. We track, and then he comes in and plays the solo once or twice. He's done. I went, oh, yeah, what an idiot, of course. How naive of me. He says, if Jeff's not there, Terry ain't going to be there. He says, and then... The, I'm about to hang up. He goes, and by the way, you're the right guy for the record. Just show up at 12 o'clock, have your crew that. And so I, wow. how was that? And then, wow, <laughs> dude, I mean, and, and then John was the nicest guy. Uh, we used to go to the movies with Jeff Beck. I forgot about that, except I was reading my book the other day and I was doing the audio and he goes, yeah, Jeff, you know, he, he says, I didn't know. You know, I wasn't around my band anymore, so I who do I hang out with? Is I'm gonna hang out with Kenny. He's fun. So me and John would hang out all the time, and we he he said I I forgot because I remember now. Yeah, we Jeff liked movies, and he liked cars. Or yeah, he didn't want to talk about music. So we were going to the movies all the time with Jeff Beck. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that's those are so, those. Uh, I mean, there's so many. So, so many, like, so like, how about like playing with the Stones? I mean, that has to be like, oh god, like yeah. So, I, 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 well, there's two times I met him, but the 
first time I was working at Jackson Brown studio, doing a record. I just called up Don. I just flew in from Indiana. Long nights, midnight or something, or eleven. I'm tired. I says Don, it's Kenny. He didn't he didn't pick up and but he calls me back and he never calls me back. He says, Hey man, what are you doing? I says, Yeah, I just finished the session. I'm headed to my hotel in Santa Monica. He says, You gotta come up to the house. I said, Why? He says, The stones are here. I'm like, Fuck, what's your address? <laughs> and so I can't figure out how to get in. There's the house and then there's I go down there's a pool and I pull a sliding glass door and I walk in and I'm like Holy shit, I walked right into vocals. It was Mick, uh, Bernard Fowler. Yes, uh, the, I know Bernard. Mm -hmm. Bernard, the singer. And uh, and it might have been the bass player who's auditioning. Anyway, I walk in, I'm like, oh my God, Don's so funny. He goes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Kenny Aronoff. <laughs> so that was the first time. All right, the second time, this is crazy. He said, uh, I called Don up. I was rehearsing with John Fogarty for the tour that was coming up. First time he was going to do the Credence catalog. Mm -hmm. And um, I, after the session, it's nine to, no, it's 12 to six. I had one hour to get to another studio, Rumbo, in the Valley. And that's where I was working with Roy Bitten from Springsteen's band. Mm -hmm. He was producing. Don tells me, come by and they're working with the Stones. At, at Back then it was Ocean Way. So I show up at midnight. I walk in, and there's, it's Keith, it's Keith's deal. Right. Mick isn't even there. Keith's got, he's got a lot of people always run. And there's uh, Charlie Watts. Uh -huh. And Jim Keltner goes, hey, Kenny, how you doing? I said, oh, my gosh, have you ever met Charlie? I went, no. He says, here's Charlie. And I meet him, and Charlie smiles. And then um, Jim goes, hey, Charlie, you know, Kenny is a really interesting percussionist. He plays weird stuff. You should have him play on your record. Charlie was in the back in Studio Two making a jazz record. Long and short of it, as I start playing on Charlie's record, and he keeps inviting me back mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Well, one day, I, this happened for two weeks. One day I walk in the second week, holy shit, Mick's there. Everyone's there. Ron, Ronnie Wood's there. Keith's there. And they're all setting everything up crazy. Everyone's running around in the back room which, where, where Charlie had been doing his thing. What had happened was... Keith would work on his stuff. Then Mick would work on his stuff on other days. Completely different styles of music. Uh-huh. And Don finally went, dude, you guys aren't the Stones unless you're playing together. Come on. You guys got to play together. So he finally, I'm there, and we're doing a song with the Rolling Stones. Charlie's playing drums. I got a gourd. I'm going to play percussion. Mick is there. Keith is there. Uh, Don, I think, might have been playing bass. Ben Montench from, you know, uh, Tom Petty's band. And it's 4 a.m. And this is the coolest thing that Mick or any lead singer could ever say. He comes up to me, and I'm going... With Charlie's hi-hat. He comes up to me and says, Hey, mate, I like what you're doing, but don't get in the way of Charlie's hi-hat. And I thought, Wow. He, it's not about him. It's about what makes the Stones special. Charlie's wow. one of them. Keith is one of them. And Mick. Wow. A, lot of t a lot of times the lead singer thinks it's all them. They don't give a shit about him. But he didn't. He gets it. Smart. And wow. that made me really respect him. And later on I was doing his solo record. It was the most, ah, oh, these are the situations I get in. I'm doing, I did four songs, just drums, me. 
And we're eating dinner. He's sitting next to me, right next to me. We're eating. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm eating with Mick fucking Jagger. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God. I was like a little kid going to the movies and seeing them on the Tammy show. And he goes, he doesn't even look at me, says, Kenny, um, could you come by tomorrow and play drums on more songs? I went, no. I said, I'm flying tonight on the red eye to Italy. Couldn't do it. Oh, wow. So I, I turned down Elton John, Mick Jagger, <laughs> and uh, there's somebody else huge I turned down. In space, the Highwaymen, which is Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, yeah. Chris Charles, Wendell and Jennings. And there's another one. I'm spacing it out. Something really big. I, I, I turned it down. And I mean, sooner or later, that's what's going to happen. I couldn't. And not only could I not, it was a stadium tour with Ooh. the biggest Italian artist, Vasco Rossi. And I'm telling you, he sold out three stadiums, 100,000 a night in 30 minutes. That's how big he is. Oh. Wow, that's crazy. And Mick is so classy. He knew who Vasco was. He didn't say a word. He just said, okay. That was it. So, okay, so I'm, I'm looking. We've been talking for over two hours, but I, I need to ask you one last question before we go because you started out being a Beatle lover and that's what got you going. Now you get to play with Paul and with Ring. You got, you got to tell me about that. About Oh, my God. Well, first of all, I had met Paul when I was doing the Alice Cooper record, uh, I was doing, it was just me doing drums. I'd do four songs a day, and we I'd write the chart out, very detailed, record the drums to tape, and then they wanted to dump it to Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the phone while they're dumping it to Pro Tools. I'm talking to Don Was, and also I see somebody's knuckles knocking. He says, <laughs> come on in. Knuckles again says, come on in. In walks Paul McCartney, I went, holy shit. Don, I gotta go, it's Paul McCartney. He says, oh man, the other guy was cooler. I said, the other guy's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I go walking up, oh my God. And Paul, true story, man. He goes, hi, Paul McCartney. I'm like, no shit. Bob Marlette's laying on his back. He goes, whoa, he gets up. And now it's Bob and me like, you know. And he says, hey, is Alice here? He said, no, he's not. Um, you know, the last time I saw Alice, it was me and my wife, and uh, we were we went out to dinner with Alice, and he had his wife, and then Elton John was there, and there was some black guy who had a 26-inch cock, and we're like, we go, I go, Bob, he said, he just said, he said, cock. and we're like little kids, like, he said, cock, you know, you think Paul McCartney would never say that. Right. And, uh. <laughs> I'm like, wow! I'm like, okay. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He's funny as hell. He hung out with us for 45 minutes. They were next door recording. Uh, and he, and I said, and I went, oh, uh, to change the subject, I went, dude, you guys are on the cover of Rolling Stone again. And you got this CD called, uh, I guess, Number One or One. It was a red album, it was their hits. And I went, that's amazing. He says, you know, I was listening to that the other day and I thought, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm like, you think? <laughs> you think? I'm like, wow. So anyway, so now we're back at, now we're doing the CBS special. And there were, not only did I get to play with Paul and Ringo, actually I played with Ringo 
two weeks prior, they were honoring him. The David Lynch Foundation was honoring him. So I got to play three songs with Ringo, which was unbelievable because he's, he sounds like Ringo Starr with the Beatles. I mean, it's a sound. It's a feel. Yeah. I'm like, and I'm sitting there. <laughs> and I, this particular TV show, Ben Montage convinced me not to wear glasses. And I regret that. I, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about the glasses before we go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was like, no, nah, I look stupid. And I'm looking at Ringo like like a little puppy dog. You know, like, oh, my God, I'm playing with him. And then the night before the Grammys, no, the Grammys, at the Grammys, I played with Ringo at the Grammys. Wow. And the High Women at the Grammys. The next night, I did the CBS special. So we're at the CBS special. And before the show, it's me, Paul, and Ringo, and Don Was, and Ben Montench hanging out for like an hour. Oh and they're and Paul's telling stories like, you know, we when we were, you know, the Hamburg days, you know, we thought we were old. We were smoking fags, and we thought we were old. They were like in their twenties, young twenties. Mm -hmm. He said, he said a couple of stories. One was. We went to a guitar shop, and you know the guy had a tie and jacket, and he was. And Paul goes, "What's that chord you're playing?" He said, "Oh, this one. I think it was like a six minor chord." Or something. He goes, "Johnny, you hear that? You got to learn that. That's an amazing chord." He says, "We, we learned it." He says, "We used it in Michelle, Michelle, my bell." He says, "We never used it again." Wow. So that, I thought that was amazing. And this is the, you know, in another story said, we came to America and we're going to the Ed Sullivan Theater and we're like, wow, there's a lot of people on the street. And the driver went, I, I think that's because of you guys. And there were <laughs> cops on those big Appaloosa horses. I think that's you guys, for you guys. He says, oh, really? He says, they thought they, they didn't think they were that big. And then they get to the Ed Sullivan show, and right before he walks on, he says, can you imagine the guy goes like this? He taps me on the shoulder and says, good luck, Mr. McCartney. 72 million people are watching you right now in North America. Good luck, and pushes him out. <laughs> he says, can you imagine? That's not... So in that conversation, we're talking, and you know, Ringo's hilarious. I, I wanted to reconfirm that story. I said, you remember coming into Alice's? He says, was that a joke? Yeah, was that a real story? Going, oh, no, that was real. <laughs> he still could have been pulling my leg, but that's he's just so funny. Wow. He's so cool. He's like, these guys are like, I mean, Paul and Ringo are just so up. And, and during the show, during the rehearsal, Ringo, you know, when we play, Ringo's drum set center and the they this was an example of a show where they the visual had more dominance over the audio. You would think it would be an audio. What? Not, yeah. Because they split the band way, they separated the band way across like the percussionist and one keyboard player in the background singers were way over there. Then they have the big backdrop and this is where the artists are gonna be in the middle, and then we're way over here. Two keyboards based on me, uh the guitar players um, you know, Steve Lukather and um, um, Spacing Out. Um, oh, damn. And then, uh, and we're like, and Ringo goes, when he comes to do his part, you're like, no, no, no. I, I need the band to be with me. He made Ken Ehrlich move wow. all, all of us over, which I thought, he says, I play in bands. You know, the Beatles, 
It's a band. I play in bands. So it was amazing. So after I played with nine artists, I played with Ringo Paul, I played with, uh, you know, Joe Walsh, I played with Dave Grohl, I played with, uh, you know, uh, oh, I played with Keith Urban, I played with uh, Brad Paisley, I'm spacing some people out. After I'm done, I, I did a really good job, and I'm, I know if I wouldn't, but I really, I, the way I handle a show like that is mm-hmm. I, I know exactly who I'm going to count off. I get the script of the show. I talk to the stage manager. I talk to the producer. Mm-hmm. I want to know the flow of the show so I know when to count off and who to direct the count off to. And if it's all over there, I get their attention. As soon as one song's done, I've got the tempo blasting in my ear of the next song. Because you could go from 68, or let's say 102 to 103. There is a difference, but it's very subtle. So I've got the click going for 10 minutes as they're resetting the stage. And I'm practicing the count-off. Now, with Joe Walsh, the song was something which goes three, four, and the tricky part is the toms have to be very even. Not It's got to be and it starts with your left hand but do but 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 crash with the left switch to your right all kinds of shit can go wrong in that huh. the whole time i'm going three four do but do but do 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 but three four do but do but do 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 but three for 10 minutes and when it was time to do it three four do but do but do do boom boom spot on now, during the rehearsal, Joe Walsh has impeccable time and mm-hmm. impeccable memory because I've played with him. He goes, what tempo are you playing? I think it was 63 or 64 beats a minute. He says, it sounds like it's too slow. So I had to make a decision. Because it's slow, I was kind of laying back. And I thought, I'm not going to speed the tempo up. I'm going to play more in the middle of the beat, right in the middle and keep it crisp and see if that works i said okay let's try this i didn't he thought i sped it up and he went yeah that's it so now i know what he likes but during the show is he one of the guys that want you know what was at rehearsal was cool but now it's too slow Mm -hmm. or is he the type of guy who's going to want to speed it up so i did it the way we did at rehearsal but i watched him the whole time and i listened to his phrasing and damn it, he wanted it exactly like the rehearsal. He has impeccable memory. And when he chooses that tempo, he means that's the tempo. Joe Walsh is way up there in phenomenal musician. You think about it, three bands, Eagles, James Gang, Joe Walsh. Not many people have done that. I'll say. So when I get done, but... Go ahead. I got to tell you this. No, tell me, tell me. I get done, I'm walking in the audience, there's 30 more minutes, and I'm walking in the audience to find my wife, and I see these elite seats, Tom Hanks, his wife, Ringo Starr, his wife, Paul McCartney's girlfriend, George Harrison's widow, Yoko Ono, Sean Lennon, Tom Cruise, uh, Sean Penn, and and, and, and uh, what's his name, Johnny Depp, they're all there, and I know everybody, Tom I know from doing that thing you do, and Ringo's sitting down going, 
bravo, Mr. Aronoff. Great job, Mr. Aronoff. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, and I've, I'm, I'm kind of worn out. And I'm at a humbling moment. I get down on one knee because everyone's watching. And before I could say anything, he goes, that's okay, I'm already married. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's his humor. So I kept thinking, this is gonna sound stupid. But I said, listen, you're the re you've heard this a million times, and I know it's gonna sound stupid, but you're the reason why I play the drums. You're the reason why I play rock and roll. You and the Beatles set me on a course at age 10. I'm still on today. And I got up, and his his wife was all teary-eyed, like Aww. like they. It was almost like they've heard it a million times, but it was sincere. It was authentic. It came from the, my heart. I walked away, and I started thinking. You know, in order to be really great at something, you have to love it, because you have to love it so much. It's got to be your purpose in life, because when it's your purpose in life. You'll, 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 you could persevere through adversity, the bad days, the shit days, the okay days, the great days. That's when it really clicked. Yes, when I saw the Beatles, I realized what my purpose in life is. And now I just fucking told Ringo. That's when I started to understand what purpose is. That's when I put it all, all together. It was like, yeah, it's true. I, what I just said, I was like listening to my own words roll out of my heart and I was like wow whoever just said that that's really good wisdom I mean oh I just said that <laughs> you're filled with incredible wisdom wonderful stories Kenny I have to have you back at some point because sure. I know it's the tip of the iceberg I know you've got stories I oh mean, yeah you know you know the ones you want to hear I haven't even touched on I, I'm sure. I mean, I, I'm I'm sitting here dying to ask you about Sting and like a million other. Oh people. yeah, Sting, Jesus, <laughs> Kennedy right. Center. All right, go uh, I'll do it real quick. So, first of all, I played with Sting when we honored Springsteen. Then I'm playing with Springsteen and Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars and blah 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 blah, blah honoring Sting. I write every note out. You know, when I get ready for the Kennedy Center honors, I listen to the records, then I listen to the latest version, and then because Bruno Mars did. Uh, police medley, I learned his way of doing it. Then I get to the Kennedy Center on first day. Then the produce, the MD comes in with his charts, and I get his charts out. And the first song he calls out, I look at my chart and his charts, and went, holy shit, mine are different. So I can't write all my music out there, so I take, I count the measures, and I start going letter A, letter B, letter C, so I can work off my chart. All right. We, we go through the rehearsal. Then the artists come in. Then they change shit. Like Lady Gaga's, you know, let's try it like this, different tempo, try this. So I make that. At night, I change all my charts, rewrite them, get them off here. Next day, we do a camera block. Now I'm talking to the producer, get the script, talking to the stage manager, I got the flow, they go like this, I got the tempo, sort that out. So I crushed it with the sting thing, thank God, you know. <laughs> in, the, in the after party, this is great, Tom Hanks was being honored that night too. So the after party is exclusive. I'm walking in the room, and there's Tom Hanks holding court with Spielberg, Sting, Springsteen, everyone's there, and Herbie Hancock. Tom looks at me and goes, Kenny! He <laughs> loves me. He loves me. He goes, Kenny, you know. And then uh, Spielberg turns around. Everybody turns around and looks at me. Sting comes flying at me, hugs me, and kisses me, and says in my ear, 
You crushed it. Oh. You killed it tonight. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I just said thank you, but inside? Are you kidding me? He's one of the greatest musicians in the world. Of all time. In the world. He says, you nailed all those parts, you know? I'm like, <laughs> and then Springsteen, he's more like, great job, man. <laughs> you know, and um, so so Tom is like going on. He says, "Yeah, I was up there with Rita," and I said, "I think that's Kenny up there. It's gonna rock because Kenny's playing." And I said, "You know, I said Tom, you know, when they did that thing you do, which I recorded, I said I almost grabbed the drummer and threw him off, but I actually he was my student once. I couldn't. He says, "You should have done it." I said, "No, no," and. I said, I gotta ask you a question. You know, when I did uh, that thing you do, and um, I, Don once told me, it's a funny story, is I walked in after doing many takes, I'd never met Tom Hanks before, and he was kinda in that, the role he played in that movie as a manager, he says, right. eh, Kenny, nice job, uh, I missed that beret. I'm like, the fuck? I look at Don, he says, he's going, <laughs> he says, He's talking about the beret you wore in the Mellencamp video, R-O-C-K in the USA, you were beatnik, and you and I was up front. And he said, Tom Hanks was inspired by that video to write the script for that thing you do. Oh my God. And Tom Hanks then said to Don at one point, hey, um, I don't, who you got in the session? Can you get a drummer like Kenny Aronoff? He says, Don goes, there's no drummer like Kenny Aronoff. So I hired Kenny Aronoff. And Tom, <laughs> so I said to Tom right there, says, is that true that you were inspired by ROCK in USA? And he said, absolutely. Now, either everybody's there listening, either he's telling the truth or he's just lying to make me feel good. Because he's that kind of guy that would make me feel good. But that's the story, man. And I've heard it before. So anyway, that's a amazing inside little slice of life of Kenny Aronoff and uh, so Kenny what's with the glasses why why the glasses always okay so I'm the first show I ever did with the pumpkins I'm about to walk on stage at the Metro in Chicago my kid was there a big pumpkins fan and he, he saw that I had a black shirt and a, a big white yellow stripe down this sleeve and yellow stripe down this sleeve and I said Nick those are cool glasses he says you should wear them. They match your shirt. So I grabbed them, put them on, and walked on stage. Next day in the Chicago Tribune, they're going like, Kenny Arnoff, John Mellencamp's drummer, joining the Pumpkins. His glasses, his glasses, his glasses, glasses. I went, I'm wearing glasses. Wow. And so I started wearing glasses. And then I thought, and then I shaved my head. It was kind of short, but I shaved it. I waited till I was in Europe, so if it was wrong, I could recover. And uh, and then all of a sudden, man, I, the glasses shaved head, I got hit on 24-7. It was like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> all right. Let's see, can I shave it even more? Five glasses? Anyway, <laughs> it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. So and then at a certain point, I went, this glass stuff is kind of getting stupid. So I took them off, and I got more shit. When I took my glasses off, they went, we drove four hours to see what glasses you were going to wear. And you're not wearing any glasses. And I went, all right. Wow. Put it back on. So then it just started to become 
kind of the brand and the cover of the book and the whole thing. And I, and I decided, and then I started not liking the way, I just think I look better with glasses on camera and on TV than not. And it became sort of my thing. So if you're walking down the street in Studio City, are you wearing glasses? Yes. Always, when you leave your house, you're always wearing glasses. Night, day. I'm getting a little bit. Doesn't it, okay, it doesn't impact. I mean, isn't it hard to like drive at night with your glasses on? Well, when I'm driving, when I'm driving, I if I have uh, glasses that are that have, um, here, see these, you can see my eyes a little bit. See, a little bit, a little bit, and I yeah. can see it's it's a little bit lighter. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. At night, I I'll take them off, but I gotta get. Uh, I'm trying to get lighter frame glasses. Then the pandemic hit, so I didn't get them. You know, where they're more clear, maybe a little frosty. Well, this became my thing. It, you know, it, you only see when you're on TV. You only see this. You only see my arms, my wrists, this, this. So this is prime real estate. And I'm not a hat guy. No, you do. You you wear it well. It all suits you. It's who you are. It's what we've come to know and expect. And you wouldn't be you if you took those glasses yeah. off. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Kenny, I've loved every moment of this. And I really mean it. I would love you to come back. Because I know this is the tip of the iceberg. It's I know there's lots more stories where this came from. And I'm inspired. Yeah. I'm gonna watch my peanut butter. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna. I really. I'm gonna talk to you maybe about that doctor and checking out the blood and the supplements. Yeah. I like that whole thing. Yeah. Um, thank Anytime. you so much. Thank you so much. It was much. fun. It's been fun I, and inspiring, and you're wonderful. I adore you. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> See ya. Take care, Kenny. Thank you. Yeah.